Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to BlackTalkRadioNetwork.com, helping you filter through the noise. Real talk. Black talk. The Internet is full of half-truths and all-out lies. We've all seen them, and many people on social media complaining about it. Here's your chance to show and prove. WorldAfropedia.com is a black-owned and operated encyclopedia. There are several thousand articles, but we need help. We can't uncover all the truth ourselves. So please, join us and become a writer, editor, or blogger for WorldAfropedia.com today. Every little bit counts. We owe it to the future generations to put the truth out there. Visit WorldAfropedia.com, the African-centered encyclopedia, a global database of African knowledge for the purpose of bringing about global African wisdom and understanding. WorldAfropedia.com. When I first came to New Guinea in the 1960s, people were still using stone tools like this axe in parts of the island. And before European arrival, people were using stone tools everywhere in New Guinea. So why didn't New Guinea develop metal tools by itself? And eventually I realized that to have metalworking specialists who can figure out how to smelt copper and iron requires that the rest of the people in the society who are farmers be able to generate enough food surpluses to feed them. But New Guinea agriculture was not productive enough to generate those food surpluses. And the result was no specialists, no metal workers, no metal tools. The way of life in New Guinea was perfectly viable. It had survived intact for thousands of years. But according to Diamond, people didn't advance technologically because they spent too much time and energy feeding themselves. And then Westerners arrived and used their technology to colonize the country. My years in New Guinea have convinced me that people around the world are fundamentally similar. Wherever you go, you can find people who are smart, resourceful, and dynamic. No society has a monopoly on those traits. Of course, there are huge cultural differences, but they're mainly the result of inequality, they're not its root cause. Ultimately, what's far more important is the hand that people have been dealt, the raw materials they've had at their disposal. New Guineans acquired pigs from Eurasia. 
but not cows or sheep or goats or horses or wheat or barley. They didn't develop in the same way as Europeans and Americans because they didn't have the same raw materials. I'm not saying that those divisions of the world are set in stone and can't be changed. It's quite the opposite. The towns of Papua New Guinea are becoming bigger and more developed, populated by modern New Guineans trying to catch up with the rest of the world. Unfortunately for them, there's still a big gap to overcome. Why you white men have so much cargo and we New Guineans have so little? Because that is the way that white Jesus intended it to be. Context of white supremacy, Gusty Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Friday, November 18th, 2016. So I have been told this is our fourth study session on Lothrop Stoddard's 1920 publication, The Rising Tide of Color Against White World Supremacy. We are picking up on chapter six. We're actually starting uh, a new section of the book this week, The Ebbing Tide of White, uh, and the specific chapter, The White Flood. We'll be looking forward to getting started. Uh, again, the reason Really, the only reason we're reading this text is because Dr. Francis Cress Welsing uh, strongly encouraged students of her work to read this book uh, to help them understand the system of white supremacy and perhaps even to gain insight as to why Donald J. Trump uh, is going to be the next president of the United States. Uh, if folks have been reading the debate, the 1929 debate between Stoddard and W.E.B. Dubois, uh, shall the Negro seek cultural equality? Uh, if you read it and want to share uh, insight or thoughts uh, on what you read, how that relates to the text, we will gladly include that as we proceed. Without further ado, we will get started. The audio uh, clip that you heard at the beginning of the program, uh, that was from Jared Diamond, a suspected racist. Uh, he has a book and a documentary film by the same name, Guns, Germs, and Steel. Uh, you can check it out. The documentary is available online. It's about three hours. Uh, but he uh, invests a lot of time in trying to figure out what is the difference between the haves of the world, individuals classified as white, and the have-nots, non-white people. The system of white supremacy, I would say that's the answer, but that doesn't seem to be at the center of his theory. We will get started. Context of white supremacy Lothrop Stoddard, The Rising Tide of Color Against White World Supremacy. Audio segment number one. Part two, The Ebbing Tide of White. Chapter six, The White Flood. The worldwide expansion of the white race during the four centuries between 1500 and 1900 is the most prodigious phenomenon in all recorded history. In my opening pages, I sketched both the magnitude of this expansion and its ethnic and political implications. I there showed that the white stocks together constitute the most numerous single branch of the human species, 
nearly one-third of all the human souls on the earth today being white. I also showed that white men racially occupy four-tenths of the entire habitable land area of the globe, while nearly nine-tenths of this area is under white political control. Such a situation is unprecedented. Never before has a race acquired such combined preponderance of numbers and dominion. This white expansion becomes doubly interesting when we realize how sudden was its inception and how rapid its evolution. A single decade before the voyage of Columbus, he would have been a bold prophet who should have predicted this high destiny. At the close of the 15th century, the white race was confined to Western and Central Europe, together with Scandinavia and the northwestern parts of European Russia. The total white race area was then not much over 2 million square miles, barely one-tenth its area today, and in numbers, the proportion was almost as unfavorable. At the moment, say, A.D. 1480, England could muster only about 2 million inhabitants, the entire population of the British Isles not much exceeding 3 million souls, to be sure, better people. Still, the population of Europe in 1480 was probably not one-sixth that of 1914. Furthermore, population had dwindled notably in the preceding 150 years. During the 14th century, Europe had been hideously scourged by the Black Death, bubonic plague, which carried off fully one-half of its inhabitants, while thereafter a series of great wars had destroyed immense numbers of people. These losses had not been repaired. Medieval society was a static, equilibrated affair, which did not favor rapid human multiplication. In fact, European life had been intensive and recessive ever since the fall of the Roman Empire a thousand years before. Europe's one medieval attempt at expansion, the Crusades, had utterly failed. In fact, far from expanding, white Europe had been continuously assailed by brown and yellow Asia. Beginning with the Huns in the last days of Rome, continuing with the Arabs, and ending with the Mongols and Ottoman Turks, Europe had undergone a millennium of Asiatic aggression. And though Europe had substantially maintained its freedom, many of its outlying marches had fallen under Asiatic domination. In 1480, for example, the Turk was marching triumphantly across southeastern Europe. Embryonic Russia was a Tartar dependency, while the Moor still clung to southern Spain. The outlook for the white race at the close of the 15th century thus seemed gloomy rather than bright. With a stationary or declining population, exposed to the assault of powerful external foes, and racked by internal pains betokening the demise of the medieval order, white Europe's future appeared a far from happy one. Suddenly, in two short years, all was changed. In 1492, Columbus discovered America, and in 1494, Vasco da Gama, doubling Africa, found the way to India. The effect of these discoveries cannot be overestimated. We can hardly conceive how our medieval forefathers viewed the ocean. To them, the ocean was a numbing, constricting presence, the abode of darkness and horror. No wonder medieval Europe was static, since it faced on ruthless, aggressive Asia and backed on nowhere. Then, in the twinkling of an eye, dead-end Europe became mistress of the ocean, and thereby mistress of the world. No such strategical opportunity had, in fact, ever been vouchsafed. From classic times down to the end of the 15th century, white Europe had confronted only the most martial and enterprising of Asiatics. With such peoples, war and trade had alike to be conducted on practically equal terms, and by frontal assault, no decisive victory could be won. But, after the great discoveries, the white man could flank his old opponents. 
Whole new worlds peopled by primitive races were unmasked, where the white man's weapons made victory certain, and whence he could draw stores of wealth to quicken his home life and initiate a progress that would soon place him immeasurably above his once dreaded assailants. And the white man proved worthy of his opportunity. His inherent racial aptitudes had been stimulated by his past. The hard conditions of medieval life had disciplined him to adversity and had weeded him by natural selection. The hammer of Asiatic invasion, clanging for a thousand years on the brown-yellow anvil, had tempered the iron of Europe into the finest steel. The white man could think, could create, could fight superlatively well. No wonder that redskins and negroes feared and adored him as a god while the somnolent races of the farther east, stunned by this strange apparition rising from the pathless ocean, offered no effective opposition. Thus began the swarming of the whites, like bees from the hive, to the uttermost ends of the earth, and, in return, Europe was quickened to intense vitality. Goods, tools, ideas, men, all were produced at an unprecedented rate. So, by action and reaction, white progress grew by leaps and bounds. The Spanish and Portuguese pioneers presently showed signs of lassitude, but the northern nations, even more vigorous and audacious, instantly sprang to the front and carried forward the proud oriflamme of white expansion and world dominion. For four hundred years, the pace never slackened, and at the close of the nineteenth century, the white man stood indubitable master of the world. Now, four hundred years of unbroken triumph naturally bred in the white race an instinctive belief that its expansion would continue indefinitely, leading automatically to ever higher and more splendid destinies. Before the Russo-Japanese War of 1904, the thought that white expansion could be stayed, much less reversed, never entered the head of one white man in a thousand. Why should it, since centuries of experience had taught the exact contrary? The settlements of America, Australia, and Siberia where the few colored aborigines vanished like smoke before the white advance. The conquest of brown Asia and the partition of Africa, where colored millions bowed with only sporadic resistance to mere handfuls of whites. Both sets of phenomena combined to persuade the white man that he was invincible and that the colored types would everywhere give way before him and his civilization. The continued existence of dense colored populations in the tropics was ascribed to climate, and even in the tropics it was assumed that whites would universally form a governing caste, directing by virtue of higher intelligence and more resolute will, and exploiting natural resources to the incalculable profit of the whole white race. Indeed, some persons believed that the tropics would become available for white settlement as soon as science had mastered tropical diseases and had prescribed an adequate hygiene. This uncritical optimism, suggested by experience, was fortified by ill-assimilated knowledge. During the closing decades of the past century, not only were biology and economics less advanced than today, but they were also infinitely less widely understood, exact knowledge being confined to academic circles. The general public had only a vulgarized smattering, mostly crystallizing about catchwords into which men read their prepossessions and their prejudices. For instance, Biologists had recently formulated the law of the survival of the fittest. This sounded very well. Accordingly, the public, in conformity with the prevailing optimism, promptly interpreted fittest as synonymous with best. In utter disregard of the grim truth that by fittest, nature denotes only the type best adapted to existing conditions of environment, and that if the environment favors a low type, this low type, unless humanly prevented, will win. 
regardless of all other considerations. So again with economics. A generation ago, relatively few persons realized that low standard men would drive out high standard men as inevitably as bad money drives out good, no matter what the results to society and the future of mankind. These are but two instances of that shallow, cocksure 19th century optimism, based upon ignorance and destined to be so swiftly and tragically disillusioned. However, for the moment, ignorance was bliss. Accordingly, the fin de siècle white world, having partitioned Africa and fairly well-dominated brown Asia, prepared to extend its sway over the one portion of the colored world which had hitherto escaped subjection, the yellow Far East. Men began speaking glibly of manifest destiny, or piously of the white man's burden. European publicists wrote didactically on the breakup of China, while Russia, bestriding Siberia, dipped behemoth paws in Pacific waters and eyed Japan. Such was the white world's confident, aggressive temper at the close of the last century. To be sure, voices were occasionally raised, warning that all was not well. Such were the writings of Professor Pearson and Meredith Townsend, but the white world gave these Cassandras the reception always accorded prophets of evil in joyous times. It ignored them, or laughed them to scorn. In fact, few of the prophets displayed Pearson's immediate certainty. Most of them qualified their prophecies with the comforting assurance that the ills predicted were relatively remote. Meredith Townsend is a good case in point. The reader may recall his prophecy of white expulsion from Asia, quoted in my second chapter. That prophecy occurs in the preface to the fourth edition, published in 1911, and written in the light of the Russo-Japanese War. Now, of course, Mr. Townsend's main thesis, Europe's inability permanently to master and assimilate Asia, had been elaborated by him long before the close of the 19th century. Nevertheless, the preface of the fourth edition speaks of Europe's failure to conquer Asia as absolute and eviction from present holdings as probable within a relatively short time. Whereas, in his original introduction, written in 1899, he foresaw a great European assault upon Asia, which would probably succeed, and from which Asia would shake itself free only after the lapse of more than a century. In fact, Mr. Townsend's words of 1899 so exactly portray white confidence at the moment that I cannot do better than quote him. His object in publishing his book is, he says, quote, to make Asia stand out clearer in English eyes, because it is evident to me that the white races under the pressure of an entirely new impulse are about to renew their periodic attempt to conquer or at least to dominate that vast continent. So grand is the prize that failures will not daunt the Europeans, still less alter their conviction. If these movements follow historic lines, they will recur for a time upon a constantly ascending scale, each repulse eliciting a greater effort, until at last Asia, like Africa, is partitioned, that is, each section is left at the disposal of some white people. If Europe can avoid internal war, or war with a much aggrandized America, she will by A.D. 2000 be mistress in Asia, and at liberty, as her people think, to enjoy. End quote. If the reader will compare these lines with Mr. Townsend's 1911 judgment, he will get a good idea of the momentous change wrought in white minds by Asia's awakening during the first decade of the 20th century, as typified by the Russo-Japanese War. 1900 was, indeed, the high watermark of the white tide which had been flooding for 400 years. At that moment, the white man stood at the pinnacle of his prestige and power. Past four short years, 
and the flash of the Japanese guns across the murky waters of Port Arthur Harbor revealed to a startled world the beginning of the ebb. Chapter 7 The Beginning of the Ebb The Russo-Japanese War is one of those landmarks in human history whose significance increases with the lapse of time. That war was momentous, not only for what it did, but even more for what it revealed. The legend of white invincibility was shattered, the veil of prestige that draped white civilization was torn aside, and the white world's manifold ills were laid bare for candid examination. Of course, previous blindness to the trend of things had not been universal. The white world had had its Cassandras, while keen-sighted Asiatics had discerned symptoms of white weakness. Nevertheless, so imposing was the white world's aspect, and so unbroken its triumphant progress, that these seers had been a small and discredited minority. The mass of mankind, white and non-white alike, remained oblivious to signs of change. This, after all, was but natural. Not only had the white advance been continuous, but its tempo had been ever-increasing. The 19th century in particular witnessed an unprecedented outburst of white activity. We have already surveyed white territorial gains, both as to area of settlement and sphere of political control. But along many other lines, white expansion was equally remarkable. White race increase, the basis of all else, was truly phenomenal. In the year 1500, the white race, then confined to Europe, could not have numbered more than 70 million. In 1800, the population of Europe was 150 million, while the whites living outside Europe numbered over 10 million. The white race had thus a trifle more than doubled its numbers in three centuries. But in the year 1900, the population of Europe was nearly 450 million, while the extra-European whites numbered fully 100 million. Thus, the whites had increased threefold in the European homeland, while in the new areas of settlement outside Europe, they had increased tenfold. The total number of whites at the end of the 19th century was thus nearly 550 million, a grain in the numbers of almost 400 million, or over 400%. This spelled an increase six times as great as that of the preceding three centuries. White race growth is most strikingly exemplified by the increase of its most expansive and successful branch, the Anglo-Saxons. In 1480, as already seen, the population of England proper was not much over 2 million. Of course, this figure was abnormally low, even for medieval times, it being due to the terrible, vital losses of the Wars of the Roses, then drawing to a close. A century later, under Elizabeth, the population of England had risen to 4 million. In 1900, the population of England was 31 million, and in 1910, it was 35 million the population of the British Isles at the latter date being 45,500,000. But in the intervening centuries, British blood had migrated to the ends of the earth, so that the total number of Anglo-Saxons in the world today cannot be much less than 100 million. This figure includes Scotch and Scotch-Irish strains, which are, of course, identical with English in the Anglo-Saxon sense and adopts the current estimate that some 50 million of people in the United States are predominantly of Anglo-Saxon origin. Thus, in four centuries, the Anglo-Saxons multiplied between 40 and 50-fold. The prodigious increase of the white race during the 19th century was due not only to territorial expansion, but even more to those astounding triumphs of science and invention, which gave the race unprecedented mastery over the resources of nature. This material advance is usually known as the Industrial Revolution. 
The Industrial Revolution began in the later decades of the 18th century, but it matured during the first half of the 19th century, when it swiftly and utterly transformed the face of things. This transformation was indeed absolutely unprecedented in the world's history. Hitherto, man's material progress had been a gradual evolution. With the exception of gunpowder, he had tapped no new sources of material energy since very ancient times. The horse-drawn mail coach of our great-grandfathers was merely a logical elaboration of the horse-drawn Egyptian chariot. The wind-driven clipper ship traced its line unbroken to Ulysses's Latin bark before Troy. While industry still relied on the bond of man and beast, or upon the simple action of wind and waterfall. Suddenly, all was changed. Steam, electricity, petrol, the Hertzian wave, harnessed nature's hidden powers, conquered distance, and shrunk the terrestrial globe to the measure of human hands. Man entered a new material world, differing not merely in degree, but in kind, from that of previous generations. When I say man, I mean, so far as the 19th century was concerned, the white man. It was the white man's brain which had conceived all this, and it was the white man alone who had first reaped the benefits. The two outstanding features of the new order were the rise of machine industry, with its incalculable acceleration of mass production, and the correlative development of cheap and rapid transportation. Both these factors favored a prodigious increase in population, particularly in Europe, since Europe became the workshop of the world. In fact, during the 19th century, Europe was transformed from a semi-rural continent into a swarming hive of industry, gorged with goods, capital, and men, pouring forth its wares to the remotest corners of the earth, and drawing thence fresh stores of raw material for new fabrication and exchange. The amount of wealth amassed by the white world in general, and by Europe in particular, since the beginning of the 19th century, is simply incalculable. Some faint conception of it can be gathered from the growth of world trade. In the year 1818, the entire volume of international commerce was valued at only $2 billion. In other words, after countless millenniums of human life upon our globe, man had been able to produce only that relatively modest volume of world exchange. In 1850, the volume of world trade had grown to $4 billion. In 1900, it had increased to $20 billion. And in 1913, it swelled to an inconceivable $40 billion, a 20-fold increase in a short hundred years. Such were the splendid achievements of 19th century civilization. But there was a seamy side to this cloth of gold. The vices of our age have been portrayed by a thousand censorious pins, and there is no need here to recapitulate them. They can mostly be summed up by the word materialism. That absorption in material questions and neglect of idealist values which characterized the 19th century has been variously accounted for. But, after all, was it not primarily due to the profound disturbance caused by drastic environmental change? Civilized man had just entered a new material world, differing not merely in degree, but in kind from that of his ancestors. It is a scientific truism that every living organism, in order to survive, must adapt itself to its environment. Therefore, any change of environment must evoke an immediate readjustment on the part of the organism, and the more pronounced the environmental change, the more rapid and thoroughgoing the organic readjustment must be. Above all, speed is essential. Nature brooks no delay, and the disharmonic organism must attune itself or perish. 
Now, is not readaptation precisely the problem with which civilized man has been increasingly confronted for the past hundred years? No one surely can deny that our present environment differs vastly from that of our ancestors. But if this is to be so, the necessity for profound and rapid adaptation becomes equally true. In fact, the race has instinctively sensed this necessity and has not bent its best energies to the task, particularly on the materialistic side. That was only natural. The pioneers' preoccupation with material matters in opening up new country is self-evident, but what is not so generally recognized is the fact that 19th century Europe and the eastern United States are in many respects environmentally newer than remote backwoods settlements. Of course, the changed character of our civilization called for idealistic adaptations no less sweeping. These were neglected because their necessity was not so compellingly patent. Indeed, man was distinctly attached to his existing idealistic outfit, to the elaboration of which he had so assiduously devoted himself in former days, and which had fairly served the requirements of his simpler past. Therefore, 19th century man concentrated intensively exclusively upon materialistic problems, feeling that he could thus concentrate because he believed that the idealistic conquests of preceding epochs had given him sound moral bases upon which to build the new material edifice. Unfortunately, that which had at first been merely a means to an end presently became an end in itself. Losing sight of his idealisms, 19th century man evolved a thoroughly materialistic philosophy. The upshot was a warped, one-sided development which quickly revealed its unsoundness. The fact that man was much less culpable of his errors than many moralists aver is quite beside the point, so far as consequences are concerned. Nature takes no excuses. She demands results. And when these are not forthcoming, she inexorably inflicts her penalties. As the 19th century drew toward its close, the symptoms of a profound malaise appeared on every side. Even those most fundamental of all factors, the vitality and quality of the race, were not immune. Vital statistics began to display features highly disquieting to thoughtful minds. The most striking of these phenomena was the declining birth rate which affected nearly all the white nations toward the close of the 19th century, and which in France resulted in a virtually stationary population. Of course, the mere fact of a lessened birth rate taken by itself is not the unmixed evil which many persons assume. Man's potential reproductive capacity, like that of all other species, is very great. In fact, the whole course of biological progress has been marked by a steady checking of that reproductive exuberance, which ran riot at the beginning of life on Earth. As Havelock Ellis well says, quote, Of one minute organism, it is estimated that, if its reproduction were not checked by death or destruction, in 30 days it would form a mass a million times larger than the sun. The conger eel lays 15 million eggs, and if they all grew up and reproduced themselves on the same scale, in two years the whole sea would become a wriggling mass of fish. As we approach the higher forms of life, reproduction gradually dies down. The animals nearest to man produce few offspring, but they surround them with parental care until they are able to lead independent lives with a fair chance of surviving. The whole process may be regarded as a mechanism for slowly subordinating quantity to quality, and so promoting the evolution of life to ever higher stages. End quote. 
While man's reproductive power is slight from the standpoint of bacteria and conger eels, it is yet far from negligible, as is shown by the birth rate of the less advanced human types at all times, and by the birth rate of the higher types under exceptionally favorable circumstances. The 19th century was one of these favorable occasions. In the new areas of settlement outside Europe, Vast regions practically untenanted by colored competitors invited the white colonists to increase and multiply. While Europe itself, though historically old country, was so transformed environmentally by the Industrial Revolution that it suddenly became capable of supporting a much larger population than heretofore. By the close of the century, however, the most pressing economic stimuli to rapid multiplication had waned in Europe and in many of the race dependencies. Therefore, the rate of increase, even under the most favorable biological circumstances, should have shown a decline. The trouble was that this diminishing human output was of less and less biological value. Wherever one looked in the white world, it was precisely those peoples of highest genetic worth whose birth rate fell off most sharply, while within the ranks of the several peoples, it was those social classes containing the highest proportion of able strains which were contributing the smallest quotas to the population. Everywhere, the better types, on which the future of the race depends, were numerically stationary or dwindling, while conversely, the lower types were gaining ground, their birth rate showing relatively slight diminution. This dysgenic trend, so ominous for the future of the race, is a melancholy commonplace of our time and many efforts have been made to measure its progress in economic or social terms. One of the most striking and easily measured examples, however, is furnished by the category of race. As explained in the introduction, the white race divides into three main subspecies, the Nordics, the Alpines, and the Mediterraneans. All three are good stocks, ranking in genetic worth well above the various colored races. However, there seems to be no question that the Nordic is far and away the most valuable type, standing indeed at the head of the whole human genus. As Madison Grant well expresses it, the Nordic is, quote, the great race, end quote. Now it is the Nordics who are most affected by the dysgenic aspects of our civilization. In the newer areas of white settlement, like our Pacific coast or the Canadian Northwest, to be sure, the Nordics even now thrive and multiply. But, in all those regions which typify the transformation of the Industrial Revolution, the Nordics do not fit into the altered environment as well as either Alpines or Mediterraneans, and hence tend to disappear. Before the Industrial Revolution, the Nordics' chief eliminator was war. His preeminent fighting ability, together with the position of leadership which he had generally acquired, threw on his shoulders the brunt of battle and exposed him to the greatest losses whereas the more stolid Alpine and the less robust Mediterranean stayed at home and reproduced their kind. The chronic turmoil of both the medieval and the modern periods imposed a perpetual drain on the Nordic stock, while the era of discovery and colonization which began with the 16th century further depleted the Nordic ranks in Europe, since it was adventurous Nordics who formed the overwhelming majority of explorers and pioneers to new lands. Thus, even at the end of the 18th century, Europe was much less Nordic than it had been a thousand years before. Nevertheless, 
down to the close of the 18th century, the Nordics suffered from no other notable handicaps than war and migration, and even enjoyed some marked advantages. Being a high type, the Nordic is naturally a high-standard man. He requires healthful living conditions, and quickly pines when deprived of good food, fresh air, and exercise. Down to the close of the 18th century, Europe was predominantly agricultural. In cool northern and central Europe, therefore, environment actually favored the big, blonde Nordics, especially as against the slighter, less muscular Mediterranean. While in the hotter south, the Nordic upper class, being the rulers, were protected from field labor, and thus survived as an aristocracy. In peaceful times, therefore, the Nordics multiplied and repaired the gaps wrought by proscription and war. The Industrial Revolution, however, profoundly modified this state of things. Europe was transformed from an agricultural to an urbanized industrial area. Numberless cities and manufacturing centers grew up, where men were close-packed and were subjected to all the evils of congested living. Of course, such conditions are not ideal for any stock. Nevertheless, the Nordics suffered more than anyone else. The cramped factory and the crowded city weeded out the big blonde Nordic with portentous rapidity, whereas the little brunette Mediterranean in particular adapted himself to the operative's bench or the clerk's stool, prospered, and reproduced his kind. The result of these new handicaps, combined with the continuance of the traditional handicaps, war and migration, has been a startling decrease of Nordics all over Europe throughout the 19th century with a corresponding resurgence of the Alpine, and still more of the Mediterranean elements. In the United States, it has been the same story. Our country, originally settled almost exclusively by Nordics, was, toward the close of the 19th century, invaded by hordes of immigrant Alpines and Mediterraneans, not to mention Asiatic elements like the Levantines and Jews. As a result, the Nordic Native American has been crowded out with amazing rapidity by these swarming, prolific aliens. And after two short generations, he has, in many of our urban areas, become almost extinct. The racial displacements induced by a changed economic or social environment are, indeed, almost incalculable. Contrary to the popular belief, nothing is more unstable than the ethnic makeup of a people. Above all, there is no more absurd fallacy than the shibboleth of the melting pot. As a matter of fact, the melting pot may mix, but does not melt. Each race type formed ages ago and set by millenniums of isolation and inbreeding is a stubbornly persistent entity. Each type possesses a special set of characters, not merely the physical characters visible to the naked eye, but moral, intellectual, and spiritual characters as well. All these characters are transmitted substantially unchanged from generation to generation. To be sure, where members of the same race stock intermarry as English and Swedish Nordics or French and British Mediterraneans, there seems to be genuine amalgamation. In most other cases, however, the result is not a blend but a mechanical mixture. Where the parent stocks are very diverse, as in matings between whites, Negroes, and Amerindians, the offspring is a mongrel, a walking chaos, so consumed by his jarring heredities that he is quite worthless. We have already viewed the mongrel and his works in Latin America. Such are the two extremes. 
where intermarriage takes place between stocks relatively near together, as in crossings between the main divisions of the white species, the result may not be bad, and is sometimes distinctly good. Nevertheless, there is no true amalgamation. The different race characters remain distinct in the mixed offspring. If the race types have generally intermarried, the country is really occupied by two or more races. The races always tending to sort themselves out again as pure types by Mendelian inheritance. Now, one of these race types will be favored by the environment, and it will accordingly tend to gain at the other's expense, while conversely, the other types will tend to be bred out and to disappear. Sometimes, a modification of the environment through social changes will suddenly reverse this process and will penalize a hitherto favored type. We then witness a resurgence or increase of the previously submerged element. A striking instance of this is going on in England. England is inhabited by two race stocks, Nordics and Mediterraneans. Down to the 18th century, England, being an agricultural country with a cool climate, favored the Nordics, and but for the Nordic handicaps of war and migration, the Mediterraneans might have been entirely eliminated. 200 years ago, the Mediterranean element in England was probably very small. The Industrial Revolution, however, reversed the selective process, and today, the small, dark types in England increase noticeably with every generation. The Swart Cockney is a resurgence of the primitive Mediterranean stock, and is probably a faithful replica of his ancestors of Neolithic times. Such was the ominous seamy side of 19th century civilization. The regressive trend was, in fact, a vicious circle. An ill-balanced, faulty environment penalized the superior strains and favored the inferior types, while, conversely, the impoverishing race stocks drained of their geniuses and overloading with the dullards and degenerates were increasingly unable to evolve environmental remedies. Thus, by action and reaction, the situation grew steadily worse disclosing its parlous state by numberless symptoms of social ill-health. All the unlovely fin de siècle phenomena, such as the decay of ideals, rampant materialism, political disruption, social unrest, and the decadence of art and literature, were merely manifestations of the same basic ills. Of course, a thoughtful minority undazzled by the prevalent optimism, pointed out evils and suggested remedies. Unfortunately, these remedies were superficial because the reformers confused manifestations with causes and combated symptoms instead of fighting the disease. For example, the white world's troubles were widely ascribed to the loss of its traditional ideals, especially the decay of religious faith. But, as the Belgian sociologist René Girard acutely remarks, Quote, to reason in this manner is, we think, to mistake the effect for the cause. To believe that philosophic and religious doctrines create morals and civilizations is a seductive error, but a fatal one. To transplant the beliefs and the institutions of a people to new regions in the hope of transplanting thither their virtues and their civilization as well is the vainest of follies. The greater or less degree of vigor in a people depends on the power of its vital instinct, of its greater or less faculty for adapting itself to and dominating the conditions of the moment. 
When the vital instinct of a people is healthy, it readily suggests to the people the religious and moral doctrines which assure its survival. It is not, therefore, because a people possess a definite belief that it is healthy and vigorous, but rather because the people is healthy and vigorous, that it adopts or invents the belief which is useful to itself. In this way, it is not because it ceases to believe that it falls into decay. It is because it is in decay that it abandons the fertile dream of its ancestors without replacing this by a new dream, equally fortifying the creative of energy. End quote. Thus, we return once more to the basic principle of race. For what is vital instinct but the imperious urge of a superior heredity? As Madison Grant well says, quote, The lesson is always the same, namely, that race is everything. Without race, there can be nothing except the slave wearing his master's clothes, stealing his master's proud name, adopting his master's tongue, and living in the crumbling ruins of his master's palace, end quote. The disastrous consequences of failure to realize this basic truth is nowhere more strikingly exemplified than in the field of white world politics during the half-century preceding the Great War. That period was dominated by two antithetical schools of political thinking, national imperialism and internationalism. Swayed by the ill-balanced spirit of the times, both schools developed extremist tendencies the former producing such monstrous aberrations as pan-Germanism and pan-Slavism, the latter evolving almost equally vicious concepts like cosmopolitanism and proletarianism. The adherents of these rival schools combated one another and wrangled among themselves. They both disregarded the basic significance of race together with its immediate corollary, the essential solidarity of the white world. As a matter of fact, White solidarity has been one of the great constants of history. For ages, the white peoples have possessed a true symbiosis or common life, ceaselessly mingling their bloods and exchanging their ideas. Accordingly, the various white nations which are the race's political expression may be regarded as so many planets gravitating about the sun of a common civilization. No such sustained and intimate race solidarity has ever been recorded in human annals. Not even the solidarity of the yellow peoples is comparable in scope. Of course, the white world's internal frictions have been legion, and at certain times these frictions have become so acute that white men have been led to disregard or even to deny their fundamental unity. This is perhaps also because white solidarity is so pervasive that we live in it, and thus ordinarily do not perceive it any more than we do the air we breathe. Should white men ever really lose their instinct of race solidarity, they would asphyxiate racially as swiftly and surely as they would asphyxiate physically if the atmospheric oxygen should suddenly be withdrawn. However, down to 1914 at least, the white world never came within measurable distance of this fatal possibility. On the contrary, the white peoples were continually expressing their fundamental solidarity by various unifying concepts like the Pax Romana, of antiquity, and the Civitas Dei, or Christian Commonwealth of the Middle Ages, and the European Concert of 19th Century Diplomacy. It was typical of the malaise which was overtaking the white world that the close of the 19th century would have witnessed an ominous ignoring of white solidarity. That national imperialists should breathe mutual slaughter while internationalists caressed visions of human solidarity culminating in universal race amalgamation. Lastly, 
that Asia's incipient revolt against white supremacy, typified by the Russo-Japanese War, should have found zealous white sponsors and abettors. Nothing, indeed, better illustrates the white world's unsoundness at the beginning of the present century than its reaction to the Russo-Japanese conflict. The tremendous significance of that event was no more lost upon the whites than it was upon the colored peoples. Most far-seeing white men recognized it as an omen of evil import for their race future. And yet, even in the first access of apprehension, these same persons generally admitted that they saw no prospect of healing, constructive action to remedy the ills which were driving the white world along the downward path. Analyzing the possibility of Europe's presenting a common front to the perils disclosed by the Japanese victories, the French publicist René Pignon sadly concluded in the negative, believing that political passions, social hates, and national rivalries would speak louder than the general interest. Quote, contemporary Europe, end quote, he wrote in 1905, quote, is probably not ready to receive and understand the lesson of the war. What are the examples of history to those gigantic commercial houses, uneasy for their New Year's balances, which are our modern nations? It is in the nature of states founded on mercantilism to content themselves with a hand-to-mouth policy, without general views or idealism, satisfied with immediate gains, and unable to prepare against a distant future. Whence in the Europe of today could come the principle of an intente, and on what could it be based? Too many divergent interests, too many rival ambitions, too many festering hates, too many dead who speak, are present to stifle the voice of Europe's conscience. However menacing the external danger, we fear that political rancors would not down, that the enemy from without would find accomplices, or at least unconscious auxiliaries within. Far more than in its regiments and battleships, the power of Japan lies in our discords, in the absence of an ideal capable of lifting the European peoples above the daily pursuit of immediate interests, capable of stirring their hearts with the thrill of a common emotion. The true yellow peril lies within us." René Pignon was a true prophet. Not only was the writing on the wall not taken to heart, the decade following the Russo-Japanese conflict witnessed a prodigious aggravation of all the ills which had afflicted white civilization during the 19th century. As if scourged by a tragic fate, the white world hurtled along the downward path until it entered the fell shadow of the modern Peloponnesian War. Chapter 8. The Modern Peloponnesian War The Peloponnesian War was the suicide of Greek civilization. It is the saddest page of history. In the brief Periclean epoch preceding the catastrophe, Hellas had shone forth with unparalleled splendor, and even those wonderful achievements seemed but the prelude to still loftier heights of glory. On the eve of its self-immolation, the Greek race, far from being exhausted, was bubbling over with exuberant vitality and creative genius. But the half-blown rose was nipped by the canker of discord. Jealous rivalries and mad ambitions smoldered till they burst into a consuming flame. For a generation, Hellas tore itself to pieces in a delirium of fracticidal strife. And even this was not the worst. The peace which closed the Peloponnesian War was no peace. It was a mere truce, dictated by the victors of the moment to sullen and vengeful enemies. 
Imposed by the sword and infused with no healing or constructive virtue, the Peloponnesian War was but the first of a war cycle which completed Hellas's ruin. The irreparable disaster had indeed occurred. The gulfs of sundering hatred had become fixed, and the sentiment of Greek race unity was destroyed. Having lost its soul, the Greek race soon lost its body as well. Drained of its best strains, the diminished remnant bowed to foreign masters and bastardized its blood with the hordes of inferior aliens who swarmed into the land. By the time of the Roman conquest, the Greeks were degenerate, and the Roman epithet Graculus was a term of deserved contempt. Thus perished the Greeks, the fairest slip that ever budded on the tree of life. They perished by their own hands, in the flower of their youth, carrying with them to the grave unborn potencies which might have blessed and brightened the world for ages. Nature is inexorable. No living being stands above her law, and protozoan or demigod, if they transgress, alike must die. The Greek tragedy should be a warning to our own day. Despite many unlikenesses, the 19th century was strangely reminiscent of the Periclean age. In creative energy and fecund achievement, surely, its like had not been seen since the glory that was Greece, and the way seemed opening to yet higher destinies. But the brilliant sunrise was presently dimmed by gathering clouds. The birth of the 20th century was attended with disquieting omens. The ills which had afflicted the preceding epoch grew more acute, synchronizing into an all-pervading militant unrest. The spirit of change was in the air. Ancient ideals and shibboleths withered before the fiery breath of a destructive criticism, while the solid crust of tradition cracked and heaved under the premonitory tremors of volcanic forces working far below. Everywhere were seen bursting forth increasingly acute eruptions of human energy, a triumph of the dynamic over the static elements of life, a growing preference for violent and revolutionary as contrasted with peaceful and evolutionary solutions. Running the whole political-social gamut from imperialism to syndicalism, everywhere could be discerned the spirit of unrest, setting the stage for the great catastrophe. Grave disorders were simply inevitable. They might perhaps have been localized. They might even have taken other forms. But the ills of our civilization were too deep-seated to have avoided grave disturbances. The Prussian plotters of Weltmacht did indeed precipitate the impending crisis in its most virulent and concentrated form. Yet after all, there were but sublimations of the abnormal trend of the times. The best proof of this is the white world's acutely pathological condition during the entire decade previous to the Great War. That fierce quest after alliances and mad piling up of armaments those paroxysmal crises which racked diplomacy's feverish frame, those ferocious struggles which desolated the Balkans, what were all these but symptoms denoting a consuming disease? Today, by contrast, we think of the Great War as having smitten a world basking in profound peace. What a delusion! Cast back the mind's eye and recall how hectic was the eve of the Great War, not merely in politics, but in most other fields as well. Those opening months of 1914, why, Europe seethed from end to end. When the Great War began, England was on the verge of civil strife. Russia was in the throes of an acute social revolt. Italy had just passed through a red week, threatening anarchy. 
and every European country was suffering from grave internal disorders. It was a strange, nightmarish time, that early summer of 1914, today quite overshadowed by subsequent events, but which later generations will assign a proper place in the chain of world history. Well, Armageddon began and ran its horrid course. With the grim chronology of those dreary years, this book is not concerned. It is with the aftermath that we here deal, and that is a sufficiently gloomy theme. The material losses are prodigious, the vital losses appalling, while the spiritual losses have well nigh bankrupted the human soul. Turning first to the material losses, they are of course in the broadest sense incalculable, but approximate estimates have been made. Perhaps the best of them is the analysis made by Professor Ernest L. Bogart, who places the direct costs of the war at $186 billion and the indirect costs at $151 billion, thus arriving at the stupendous total of $337 billion. These well-nigh inconceivable estimates still do not adequately represent the total losses, figured even in monetary terms, for, as Professor Bogart remarks, quote, the figures presented in this summary are both incomprehensible and appalling, yet even these do not take into account the effect of the war on life, human vitality, economic well-being, ethics, morality, or other phases of human relationships and activities which have been disorganized and injured. It is evident from the present disturbances in Europe that the real costs of the war cannot be measured by the direct money outlays of the belligerents during the five years of its duration, but that the very breakdown of modern economic society might be the price exacted. Yet prodigious as has been the destruction of wealth, the destruction of life is even more serious. Wealth can sooner or later be replaced, while vital losses are, by their very nature, irreparable. Never before were such masses of men arrayed for mutual slaughter. During the late war, nearly 60 million soldiers were mobilized, and the combatants suffered 33 million casualties, of whom nearly 8 million were killed or died of disease, nearly 19 million were wounded, and 7 million taken prisoners. The greatest sufferer was Russia, which had over 9 million casualties, while next in order came Germany with 6 million and France with 4,500,000 casualties. The British Empire had 3 million casualties. America's losses were relatively slight, our total casualties being a trifle under 300,000. And this is only the beginning of the story. The figures just quoted refer only to fighting men. They take no account of the civilian population, but the civilian losses were simply incalculable, especially in Eastern Europe and the Ottoman Empire. It is estimated that for every soldier killed, five civilians perished by hunger, exposure, disease, massacre, or heightened infant mortality. The civilian deaths in Poland and Russia are placed at many millions, while other millions died in Turkey and Serbia through massacre and starvation. One item alone will give some idea of the wastage of human life during the war. The deaths beyond the normal mortality due to influenza and pneumonia induced by the war are estimated at 4 million. The total loss of life directly attributable to the war is probably fully 40 million, while if decreased birth rates be added, the total would rise to nearly 50 million. Furthermore, so far as civilian deaths are concerned, the terrible conditions prevailing over a great part of Europe since the close of 1918 have caused additional losses relatively as severe as those during the war years. 
The way in which Europe's population has been literally decimated by the late war is shown by the example of France. In 1914, the population of France was 39,700,000. From this relatively moderate population, nearly 8 million men were mobilized during the war. Of these, nearly 1,400,000 were killed, 3 million were wounded, and more than 40,000 were made prisoners. Of the wounded, between 800,000 and 900,000 were left permanent physical wrecks. Thus, fully 2 million men, mostly drawn from the flower of French manhood, were dead or hopelessly incapacitated. Meanwhile, the civilian population was also shrinking. Omitting the civilian deaths in the northern departments under German occupation, the excess of deaths over births was more than 50,000 for 1914 and averaged nearly 300,000 for the four succeeding war years. And the most alarming feature was that these losses were mainly due not to deaths of adults, but to a slump in the birth rate. French births, which had been 600,000 in 1913, dropped to 315,000 in 1916 and 343,000 in 1917. All told, it seems probable that between 1913 and 1919, the population of France diminished by almost 3 million, nearly one-tenth of the entire population. France's vital losses are only typical of what has to a greater or less extent occurred all over Europe. The dysgenic effect of the Great War is simply appalling. The war was nothing short of a headlong plunge into white race suicide. It was essentially a civil war between closely related white stocks. A war wherein every physical and mental effective was gathered up and hurled into a hell of lethal machinery, which killed out unerringly the youngest, the bravest, and the best. Context of White Supremacy If you would like to participate, discuss the book, feel free to chime in. The number 641-715-3600. Four zero. The code is five six four nine four three pound. Press star six if you would like to participate. That number again six four one seven one five three six four zero. The code is five six four nine four three pound. Press star six if you would like to participate. That was the end of the first audio segment. We are in uh, the middle uh, of chapter seven. Middle of chapter seven. Uh, we'll pick up there when we come back uh, for audio segment number two. If you would like to participate and you do not have your phone or if you don't want to use your phone to dial in you can use the free vote line it's linked at black talk radio network if you need the address it is tiny t-i-n-y dot c-c forward slash one race that is the number one the address again tiny t-i-n-y dot c-c forward slash one race that is the number one. When you put in that address, click the link on the left of the page. It says free vote line. Click that link. When you do so, it will open a small window on your screen. The top line, it is a drop down menu. Select the number that I just gave out, which again is 641 715 3640. 
the next line it will ask for the code that code is five six four nine four three final line it will ask for a name you can give a real name you can type in a nickname you can just press random keys whatever you're comfortable with once you get the information entered click the green button at the bottom it will connect you to the live program you should be able to hear us it is the same procedure if you would like to participate you will see the dial pad on your screen press star six when you do so you will hear an audio prompt Press the number one. We'll get you on the line and you should be able to share your views. Uh, If our editor, former narrator, Mel, if she's listening, uh, if you want to give a thought or two as to the connection between this work uh, that we're reading, Mr. Stoddard and Guns, Germs and Steel. I played a little snippet in in the introduction for today's broadcast. Uh, You said it seems related. Seems like they might have a slightly different interpretation of why whites have and non-whites do not uh but if you are listening live and you want to give us a bit of uh, insight as to the connection feel free uh and also for any of our listeners if you have read the debate between dubois and stoddard you can feel free to sprinkle your commentary on that as we go along if you see uh points that relate to the text that we're reading uh or just anything that you think is noteworthy from that uh document uh i posted it online i've emailed it to folks you should be able to put your hands on it and check it out as we proceed everyone who dialed in with a hand up line should be open uh feel free to share your thoughts can i be heard yes sir uh greetings gus and uh, greetings to everybody on the call listening um just a couple of things that I uh, just wanted to uh, bring out. Um, I guess uh, during this time, uh, the 1920s, uh, this was when uh, other Europeans like the Scottish, the you know Italians, weren't really considered Americans. I mean, uh, this was probably during the time where uh, uh, pure Anglo-Saxon people were considered the only Americans uh, considered at the time, and you know this text, you know, just you know touches on that uh, with him talking about the Scottish and the Scottish Irish strain. Uh, he uses that word "strain" again as like some kind of disease. So uh, he's um, he you know he automatically uh, <clears throat> uh, dismisses the Scottish. Uh, he also talks about uh, he also talks about the different type of you know, white stock in regards to the Mediterranean and the Alpines and how the Alpines and Mediterranean were of lesser stock. So that also is a, a kind of like a clue of the times that, that was, you know, that was during, uh, during back then. Cause like us, you know, like we all know that Irish and Italians weren't considered, you know, quote unquote, real Americans during that time. But however, uh, he says in the last page of the seventh uh, of the seventh chapter, where he talks about how uh, talks about white solidarity. So generally, you know, he talks about that white solidarity is always intact. Uh, and if white, you know, if, if whites stop having solidarity, they would, you know, they would basically die. And so he even, you know, references that to like that, you know, that solidarity has never you know, has never waned, even during the, even during the, the, the periods of, you know, World War One, which was, uh, you know, a, a war between white people. But he said that, 
even during that time, uh, they, you know, they stand solid and they stand united. And, you know, everything is about race with them. So uh, that's something that they have no question on. And they, they, uh, <clears throat> they generally are unified in, you know, as one race. And we all know that uh, they can have their quarrels, they can have their arguments, but when it comes, you know, to people of color, they will unite in a minute. Uh, you can also tell that, you know, he's being very disingenuous on history, uh, dismissing a lot of things. Uh, I, well, I don't know if he's intentionally doing that or, you know, he just doesn't know. I'm, I'm thinking he's intentionally doing that, but uh, dismissing a lot of historical uh, facts, and even in his own, uh, even in, in, in their own history, because there is, there is also a sign that, you know, even the Vikings, you know, sailed across the, you know, the, the uh, Atlantic Ocean before Columbus did. So, uh, you know, I don't know, like I said, he's being disingenuous. And he used the term Nordic Native American. I have no idea what that is. So uh, that's all for me, and uh, I'll uh, mute my line. I had to do a double take on that one too. The Nordic Native American, like exactly what does that mean? And certainly whites get to make up things. Then I thought about it for a while and I was like, maybe that was his, his attempt at referencing uh, the people who are classified as white, uh, who have been the invaders who have been in North America for a longer period of time now. Maybe that's who he's talking about, and that's the way that he chose to label them. But, yeah, I had to do a, a hard double take on that one as well. The the native, uh, the Nordic Native Americans, that's what he said. Uh, other folks that we have not heard from have commentary. Feel free. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Uh, greetings to you, Dustin, to, to all the callers um, and the listeners. I just split my side when I heard the Nordic Native Americans. <laughs> um, uh, I was um, not able to start from the very beginning, but I was able to catch a decent portion of the text. And again, uh, Mr. Stoddard is a prodigious liar. <laughs> like, it's just unreal. Um, at the beginning of Chapter 6, uh he discusses the bubonic plague and he says that um, the bubonic plague, also known as the Black Death, uh, carried off fully one half of its inha inhabitants, speaking of Europe. That is a lie. Actually, it was two-thirds of Europe that died from the bubonic plague. And sadly, it was black people who saved them. When the Moors went there and brought their sciences and their medical skills and, their, um, and everything with them there, they are the reasons that we have the Europeans here right now. They would have probably all died off if the Moors had not had gone there. So um, it made me think about that. And the Nordic Native American just made me think of the original meaning of the term American in the oldest dictionary in the, in the United States, which is the Noah's Webster Dictionary from 1828, I believe it is, where it says that the term American is applied to the aboriginal indigenous copper-colored people in North America, but now the term is used for Europeans and their descendants. So they're basically saying in that, that which is the oldest dictionary in the United States, that essentially they're stealing the identity of the indigenous people. So now they're Nordic Native Americans. Um, so I found that very interesting. But again, let me just get further into the text now. Um, also, he writes, um, he writes on page 89, 
that uh, at one point the total number it says the total number of whites at the end of the 19th century was nearly 550 million. That is not possible. Um, there's no way that a mutant race of degenerates like white people ever made up those kind of numbers. I just do not believe that. That is not something I've ever come across. That is just a ridiculous number he's tossing around, like he's tossing around a lot of other lives there. So as far as that, and I've studied quite a bit about about history in general, and when it comes to European history, there was never uh, more than half a, a billion people that were white, classified as white on the planet. That's just not true. So there is another one, um, another blatant lie that he was talking about there in the text. Um, he wrote on page 91, such were the splendid achievements of 19th century civilization, but there was there was a seamy side to this cloth of gold. The vices of our, of our age have been portrayed by a thousand censorious pens, and there is no need to recapitulate them. They can mostly be summed up by the word materialism, that absorption in material questions and neglect of idealistic values which characterized the 19th century has been variously accounted for. But after all, was it not primarily due to the profound disturbance caused by drastic environmental change? Civilized man had just entered a new material world, differing not merely in degree but in kind from that of his ancestors. It is a scientific truism that every living organism, in order to survive, must adapt itself to its environment. Therefore, any change of environment must evoke an immediate adjustment on the part of the organism, and the more pronounced the more pronounced the environmental change, the more rapid and thoroughgoing the organic readjustment must be. Above all, speed is essential. Nature brooks no delay, and the dis disharmonic organism must attune itself or perish. And I found that second half of the, of the paragraph specifically, um, when he speaks of civilized man, he's basically speaking of white people. And I like the fact that he's looking at white people from the aspect of a scientist as far as using the term organism because he's basically saying that white people need to adjust to their environment um, and rapidly have to rapidly be able to do so or they will perish. And um, when, he's, when he discusses the disharmonic organism must attune itself or perish, from what I'm gathering from the text, he's speaking about white people understanding that they're a minority and having to rally around the idea of the religion of racism, white supremacy, in order not to be genetically annihilated. So he's speaking in highly, highly refined, um, of massive amounts of nonsensical verbiage, but it's highly refined and coded language to white people to let them know that, that they have to do certain things, and the main thing is to practice racism or they're going to perish. On the following page, excuse me, he writes, uh, as the 19th century drew towards its close, the symptoms of a profound malaise appeared on every side. Even those most, fundament of, most fundamental of all factors, vita the vitality and quality of the race, were not, excuse me, were not immune. Excuse me. Vital statistics began to display futures, features highly disquieting to thoughtful minds. The most striking of these phenomena was the declining birth rate, which affected nearly all white nations towards the close of the 19th century, and which in France resulted in a virtually stationary population. So he's saying that previously that there was 550 million white people, and by the end of the 19th century, <laughs> basically they, they were at a negative birth rate. And on that prior page that I read, he's discussing, again, that they have to attune themselves or perish as an organism. And that's why Dr. Welsing, 
was um, so brilliant when she discussed uh, studying the system of white supremacy from a non-emotional standpoint and being scientists, being scientific about how we approach the problem, scientific about how we, um, how we uh, defend ourselves as far as codification and scientific about the solution, um, whereas white people have been scientific about dominating non-white people wherever we have been found. So I think that, that's, that his ability to look at white people as an organism will give insight to black people and other non-white people to look at them the same way and not to be emotional about what they're doing because once you study an organism, you know what, what, it, what it does, how it functions, what its purpose is, and why it's doing what it's doing. And rather than looking at it as something religious where you might call them evil or whatever the case may be, it's a scientific, the, the emotionally detached approach to a scientifically detached problem starter. And um, I think that is a very great way of looking, looking at and attacking the problem. Um, I'm going to touch on one more thing and give other people a chance to speak. I did have some other stuff. Hopefully I'll get it in later. But the last paragraph I wanted to touch on for now is um, on page 95. It says, the racial displacements induced by a change, changed economic or social environment are indeed almost incalculable. Contrary to popular belief, nothing is more unstable than the ethnic makeup of a people. Above all, there is no, absurd, no more absurd fallacy than the shibboleth of the melting pot. As a matter of fact, the melting pot may mix, but it does not melt. Each race type formed ages ago and set by millenniums of isolation and inbreeding is a stubbornly persistent entity. Each type possesses a special set of characters, not merely the physical characters visible to the naked eye, but moral, intellectual, and spiritual characters as well. All these characters are transmitted substantially unchanged from generation to generation. To be sure, where members of the same race stock intermarry as English and Swedish Nordics or French and British Mediterraneans, there seems to be a genuine amalgamation. In most other cases, however, the result is not a blend, but a mechanical mixture, where the parent stocks are very diverse, as in meetings between whites, Negroes, and Amerindians. The offspring is a mongrel, a walking chaos, so consumed by his jarring heredities that he is quite worthless. We have already viewed the mongrel and his works in Latin America. I found this to be a very important paragraph in regards to just his approach to what he's discussing. I like the fact that he discusses that there is no such thing as a melting pot because we are living that reality right now, and that is a lie that I've heard from the time I've touched down on this planet from the world of the dead that we are in this melting pot in New York City, which is where I grew up, is the melting pot of them all. And I like the fact that he's letting us know that uh, race in this country is basically oil and water. It's never going to mix, and there's always going to be a conflict between the two. I like the fact that, um, well, uh, actually he's, again, lying, because he says here, as a matter of fact, the melting pot may mix but not melt. Each race type formed ages ago and set by millenniums of isolation and inbreeding. The only race that is inbred is the white race. So, again, he's projecting what white people do and are on non-white people because that is how they maintain their whiteness and that is how they practice that power and why they practice racism and white supremacy is their fear of genetic annihilation. And the inbreeding is basically a stubborn characteristic of what it means to be white. And also, um, when he discusses that... Oh, wait, I think it's on the... Yeah, right there. When he discusses that... Um, 
the matings between whites, Negroes, and Amerindians, the offspring is a mongrel, a walking chaos, so consumed by his jarring heredities that he is quite worthless. And we have already viewed the mongrel and his works in Latin America. I think that really speaks volumes to um, why it is incorrect for non-white people to have any sexual activity with white people until and unless the system of white supremacy is completely eradicated. And I would say afterwards we should still have no contact with them. And the fact that he discusses that um, they are walking chaos, it kind of reminds me of when you see matings between a lion and a tiger, they call them ligers. And the fact that they speak about the genetic confusion of that offspring because a lion is a social is the most social of all cats and a tiger is solitary. So there is a literal genetic confusion of how the animal expresses its characteristics due to the fact that it has conflicting bloodlines. And I see that manifest in uh so called mixed race people quite often unless those people are raised by the black half of their family and they're infused with the understanding of racism and white supremacy and that as a non-white black person, they're going to be mistreated severely or potentially killed due to that fact. Whenever they're raised by their white relatives, they display that exact same confusion because of the fact that they are, um, they, they basically are being trained to hate their, their black half or their non-white half and to favor their white half and mistreat the people who look like their black parents. Uh, thank you with that. I'll meet my line. I appreciate it. Uh, other folks that we have not heard from, did you all have commentary you wanted to share? Yes, may I be heard? Yes, sir. May I be heard? Yes, sir. We can hear you, Mr. Demery. For Okay, greeting to folks. Um, I'm happy to tune in tonight because I think I made a breakthrough at first, I could hardly stand and listen to this book. But I think that, uh, like Roz was saying, a little less emotionalism and more scientific, uh, you know, study may be required. But I, uh, I took a few notes here. The At the beginning, in Chapter 7, when it said, uh, the legend of white, Invincibility was shattered. The veil of prestige that draped white civilization was torn aside, and the white world's manifold ills was laid bare for candid examination. You know, I just can't help but think that uh, he thinks so much of uh, white, the white people, that any ills that were laid bare, you know, were probably blamed upon non-white people because everything that he talks about is <clears throat> putting down non-whites and uh, elevating whites. I thought it was strange that the total number of whites at the end of the 19th century was thus nearly 550 uh, million um, and he led us to believe that uh, white people were making up a larger percentage of the human population than it could possibly be because we know that they make up only one-tenth of the population if you think white against non-white 
And uh, on page 157, you know, he made it clear that when he was uh, using the term man, man in a, a new material world, differing not merely in degree, but in a kind from that of previous generations, that he said next, when I say man, I mean so far as the 19th century was concerned, the white man. It was the white man's brain which had conceived all this, and it was the white man alone who at first reaped the benefits. So he's making it clear, you know, uh, when he talking about anything normal or the bar in which to reach, he's talking about white. And then I think Ross touched upon the scientific truism that he was talking about the living organism uh, readjusting itself. But later on, uh, he said that Habakkuk Ellis uh, said, of one-minute organism, it is estimated that if its reproduction were not checked by death or destruction, in 30 days it would mass, it would form a mass a million times larger than the sun. So I think that, uh, you know, the point being made is that uh, by them being a smaller percentage of the population, they're going to have to have some checks and balances to keep down the non-whites the way that I took it. And then uh, he goes on to talk about <clears throat> the most striking and easily measured examples when he was talking about race and the, the difference in the uh, birth rate and what happens, I guess, when you uh, mix, uh, race mix. One of the most striking and easily measured examples, however, is furnished by the category of race. As explained in the introduction, the white race divides into three main subspecies, the Nordics, the Alpines, and the Mediterranean. And then he goes on to say that uh, one guy, Madison Grant, said that the Nordics was the great race. So, you know, I thought about something in reading that, is that when I started to study about white people, I wanted to know the difference in them and what was going on. You know, I looked in the books that were written by white people, and you can't get an accurate uh, uh, understanding of what it means to be white by reading uh, works from white people. I've learned more by reading the works of how black people either view themselves from the reaction they have from the oppression or from how they think that white people are. And then from that basis, you can add on uh, more uh, sophistication or more strategies, you know, because it's, it's a, really a basic thing. They do not like non-white people. And the more melanin you, melanin you have in your skin, the, the higher degree of dis, disdain and dislike that they have. And that's basically what you need to know. Because he 
got into intermarriage and <clears throat> making a making a point that you know if whites intermix you know the diversity in the mating um, would be very different from if whites negroes and say american indians the offsprings would be mongrel and a walk in chaos so consumed by his joy and inheritance that he's quite worthless we have already viewed the mongrel in his works in latin america and then he go on to say well basically if white people interact i guess the inner intermarriage the Nordics and the Alpines and the Mediterraneans, then it'll be very little uh, damage, and it may even be some good, according to him. And uh, <clears throat> I got, let's see, one last thing I wanted to ask, and I'll give somebody else a chance if I can. Uh, Basically, what he's leading uh, everyone to believe that everything that was ever done of any significance was done by whites and that virtually no contributions to mankind uh, can be attributed to non-whites. And I'll, I'll move my line, give somebody else a chance. I'll find that other piece a little later. Thanks for taking the call, bro. Yes, sir. Uh, do we have any other listeners who had commentary they wanted to share? Anybody we have not heard from as of yet? Folks all satisfied? Actually, no. Can I be heard? Yes, ma'am. Greetings, everybody. This is 1842. Um, I wanted to talk about the debate a little bit. Um, I took a couple of notes, but there were just a few things that really stuck out to me about the debate. One, it reminded me of the debate between Welsing and Shockley, or Stoke Stockley, if I'm saying the name right. Um, Shockley. And mainly because what I've been noticing when non-white black people debate these so-called white intellectuals we're saying something very direct, very to the point, very specific, and very clear. Yet these white people are always responding with a ton of like graphics. In the case of Mr. Welsing, uh, um, in the case of Dr. Welsing's debate, or a bunch of just like jargon and confusion, they never actually speak directly to what we're saying. And I think it's interesting to see the pattern repeated several times back to back because it becomes really apparent. Because, you know, I watched that one, I read this, and um, I just I thought that, that was something to note, how they're constantly playing with our sanity. Because if I'm saying something very clear, and then it's your turn to respond. You don't address anything that I've really said. 
and you, you just ignore it all together and you start showing me pictures or bringing up information that's completely irrelevant or just like way left field. Um, I feel like that plays into why we sometimes feel like we're crazy. It's like having a conversation who's with someone who's not talking to you whatsoever. Uh, in the debate, I know this is, um, well, as a, as a non-white black female, it's very important for me to locate, to find, and to validate that black men have always considered black women in our struggle for liberation and freedom because to replace the system of racism with justice also, because there is a narrative that black men are just all about black men and black men suffer the most. And, you know, so that's where black women go off and, you know, align themselves with white women. And I just don't, I don't believe that. I don't think that that's true. Um, But I always love it when I, can find something or see something that is just healing for me and validates that for me. And on page six of the debate, um, Dr. Dubois is talking and he's saying, um, I, I hope you all have read it. I didn't, I don't want to spend a lot of time rereading things, but, um, he says that towards the bottom, they have been responsible for more intermixture of races than any other people, ancient and modern, and they have inflicted this miscegenation on helpless, unwilling slaves by force, fraud, and insult. And this is the folk that today has the impudence to turn on the darker races when they demand a share of civilization and cry, you shall not marry our daughters. Our daughters. The blunt, crude reply is, who in hell acts to marry your daughters? If this race problem must be reduced to a matter of sex, what we demand is the right to protect the decency of our own daughters. And um, so I, that, I was very happy, you know, because this is, this is Dr. Dubois' introduction where he says this. And I think that, that like, we as black women kind of need to put that at the focus, that black men are, are definitely considering us. Um, and have always been considering us. And just to kind of tie in, um, when I watched Birth of a Nation, that the reason that, part of the reason that Nat Turner went to war was the rape of his wife. And then also I was listening to another of the shows um, that the civil rights movement was fueled by the ever pervescent rape of black women. You don't hear that narrative ever. So there's a constant dialogue that black men are not concerned with black women's protecting black women whatsoever and that's false so I, I would just wanted to point that out because it um it meant a lot to me that dr dubois had put that in there and then um but so pretty much the debate is just like what i said dr dubois was very clear and to the point and um stoddard is dancing around everything and he introduces some terminology and i remember wondering where did we even get to this like what um he uses the term amalgamation a ton of times dr dubois shuts that down and says we're not even talking amalgamation i don't even know why you're bringing that up that's not the point um and then well anyway i don't want to spend too much time on that maybe other folks will want to comment and then we can talk about the debate now for the reading um i was curious because he said set up a ruling class and I could think of a few instances around the world where that had happened with quote unquote natives 
of the area and then the and then the two non-white groups would war with each other but then it also had me wondering about the like quote-unquote mulattoes if like if he might have been intending that because he said go and set up like a ruling class um which would just you know be kind of puppets but they would be the offspring of these invaders that's just a, a thought and then i was very grateful that he said nature says who is best quote-unquote where because the white people took that to mean, well, he, they took it to interpret that white people were best everywhere. And nature says, no, you're not. Um, Non-white people are best in the majority of places. Um, but anywho, and then I'm really grateful that Dr. Welsing suggested this book at the time that she did at, when she meant, when she predicted Trump, because one of the things that I've been trying to think also, or that I've been thinking is that, Asia is where they haven't conquered. He talks about there's so much energy invested in talking about how they haven't conquered Asia. And I feel like white people will not be able to let that go. White people are not going to be okay having not destroyed Asia. And you know what I mean? Like they just, they're, they're, it's, it's beyond them. They can't do it. And um, if that's the case, then I feel like we're very close to being at war with some Asian country, if not just China, um, and whether that war is like full on, you know, war, war, the way we think of war or economic war, which has been interesting because I remember reading an article where Trump is already talking about breaking ties or adjusting ties or doing something to China. Um, so there you go. The book talks about Asia. Trump's talking about Asia. Um, and so then, okay, when how the blondes, the Nordics are all the blondes. And then I was like, oh, my goodness, it struck me that definitely the albinos, right? Because then everyone, like, I remember someone telling me that in order for them, if in order for them to have had brown hair and brown eyes and to even get any of those dominant features, they would have had to interbreed or mix with um, melanic people. So the Nordics would be those albinos that Dr. Francis Cress Welsing is talking about. But there's so few of them that, you know, they're doing what they're doing. Um, but it totally made sense that made sense that there would be tears to these white people, but they have to include them all because they need to have the numbers. But Nordic Nordics would be those albinos who are blunt, like who are totally recessive. Um, and then as one of the other callers mentioned um, the scientific aspect of things. And, and I thought it was very interesting because in the debate, one thing that fresh, it didn't even frustrate me, but one thing to note is that Stoddard spends an, a lot of time placing a lot of emphasis on our culture being our art, being our literature, our poetry, our singing and dancing. And he's like, well, look, um, you know, we love, like, we'll embrace that, but you can't make us mad. We're not going to embrace your, because that's how he's defining culture. We're not going to embrace your culture if you make us mad. But the whole time, it's totally based on the arts. And I myself, um, and I think a lot of other non-white individuals, find them find it harder to, number one, think scientifically, but also to think of themselves as scientists and mathematicians. It's easier for us because we're pushed to be more artistic, 
so-called creative and that kind of thing, which is there's nothing wrong with it, but it doesn't build what they call like that left side of our thinking or our brain. So then, um, which I thought was interesting because Dr. Dubois is being very scientific, in my opinion, in the debate, very clear, if then statements, hypothesis, then this would happen. Like it's very scientific what he's saying. And then Sartre keeps trying to make it that culture is just the art. And that's all that, you know, he's bringing down what Dr. Dubois is talking about. Um, but I thought that that was very interesting that that is a place that I feel we Melanic people get to go in our thinking is being more scientific because they're totally scientific in the way that they've been doing things for 400, 500 years, whereas they just keep pushing us over into the more emotional, creative, what some would call the effeminate or feminine aspects of thinking, creating, and doing versus being analytical, logical, reasonable, you know. Um, but that was just something that I was thinking about. Um, thank you very much for taking my call. For sure. Uh, former narrator, our editor for this work. Uh, Mel, did you have commentary you wanted to share? I did. Can you hear me? Yes, ma'am. Okay. I had... Um I had one comment about what we've read so far, and then I had a comment about guns, germs, and steel. Um, and I did read the debate, and I want to save that for the second half. Um, on page 148, Stoddard writes, the white man could think, could create, could fight superlatively well. No wonder that the redskins and Negroes feared and adored him as a god. Um, I thought that was probably the most egotistical line of the book so far. Um, I think the second most egotistical line is coming up. And then regarding guns, germs, and steel, um, I thought that the, the documentary seemed to indicate that like fate and destiny was the reason that white people dominated. And it seems to me in the same way that Stoddard seems to say that nature and or destiny allows white people to be, to be superior. Um, but in my opinion, white supremacy is not a system based on legit science or even chance. Um, even if other populations had the ability or chance to practice supremacy of any kind, global supremacy for centuries, white people seem to be historically unique in that they are the only people who took that chance to abuse people of color. Um, and, and the documentary kind of shows like every invention they come across, fireworks into gunpowder, every skill they gain, every new nation they come across would seem to just be used for evil, or they'd see it with the evil eyes. Um, like in the prior chapters, um, he talked about with Red Man's Land, how he, like you go to this South American or North American land, you see natives living in the Americas. They're not an idyllic population for you to trade with or learn anything from or, or anything like that. Stoddard sees them as idle people and their land is not being used correctly at all. Um, I also thought that the documentary would explain why white people decide to settle, why white supremacists decide to settle in some areas and simply exploit others from afar, particularly in the third part of the documentary where uh, he talks about how they had issues surviving in Central Africa due to the heat, the mosquitoes, the diseases, et cetera, that they didn't develop immunities for um, quickly enough. In The Rising Tide of Color, he talked about why they chose to live in Chile in the last chapter in South America, but obviously not like in other places. They didn't decide to live in the Amazon, for instance, even though the Amazon produces even today a great number of resources for them, um, possibly more than Chile. 
Um, that said, they'll take vacations anywhere and devastate anywhere from afar, but it did help me explain something like why the skin cancer rates among whites were at like a record high in Australia recently, because they're not necessarily from there. Meanwhile, the aboriginal people who live there do not do not display these high rates of skin cancer at all. It's, it's practically non-existent. Um, so I'm just thinking some environments may be more suitable for white people than other environments in terms of living, but white supremacy just seems to be global. So um, those are my comments for now, and then I will comment on the debate in the second part. Thank you. Splendid. Great job with the editing. Great job with the narration. You can pass that along to your partner so glad nobody accused him of sounding white so we didn't have to deal with that uh, <laughs> this time uh this time through thank goodness um any other folks uh if you have commentary um you should get your hand up like sooner than later so we don't you know get botched get into the second audio segment um the quick things that i will get in some of the notes that i made um, I think y'all already touched on uh, the deception in terms of him stating that at any point the planet was one third white uh, in terms of human population. Uh, that is, I mean, that's just goofy now. Come on. Um, I'd be interested to kind of read this with Dr. Welsing to see what he makes of, you know, some of these statistics that he's just tossing around in the book. Like I'd be I would really dig getting a chance, like maybe not to keep forever and ever, but at least if she had a hard copy of this book. Uh, to see if she wrote her notes in the margin of the book, like that would be a treat uh, to see what kind of thoughts and things that she, Dr. Welsing had as she was reading this book. When he refers to the bubonic plague as uh, the black death, uh, I just thought, at least in my opinion, the racist mind, I think they consistently, they have to frame and conceptualize anything that is harmful to them uh, in terms of white genetic annihilation it has to be conceived of as non-white particularly if it's especially damaging it has to be conceived of as black uh africanized bees uh the yellow peril the uh communist threat it it ends up being changed around into a color phenomenon even though when they were talking about the threat of communism they were talking about individuals in russia many of whom would be classified as white but it still got cast as the red threat uh they do a lot of things like this uh where any sort of uh problem concern it gets changed to uh it gets uh, changed into something dealing with color particularly a non-white color to represent a threat um let's see the next thing i had where he says that white people a white man proved worthy of his opportunity, his inherent racial aptitudes. That is incredible. Uh, unless we're talking about uh, deception and savagery, I have no idea what we're talking about if we are saying uh, racial aptitudes. Those, I would say, would be the most prominent features of what I see in terms of uh, racial aptitudes. Uh, and I mean, he just goes on with this just really, really flowery. Uh, language uh, to bolster his propaganda. I think that's even a function of some of the way that it's written with the metaphors, the really elevated uh, diction uh, that he uses and the statistics and what have you. I think he knows a lot of this is propaganda. The whole of this is propaganda, uh, white supremacist propaganda. And so it can overwhelm you. Uh, because it's so verbose and the writing is kind of dense uh, at times and the vocabulary, what have you, it can overwhelm you 
I'd even challenge it. But, I mean, if you can just weave through all of that, if you understand a little bit about racism, white supremacy, you can see uh, just a lot of this. Um, he continues where he just has all of these accolades for white people. I guess even in comparison with guns, germs, and steel, this seems much more of white people are just the coolest. It is not just, you know, some sort of geographical accident that we ended up in this spot and had the choicest uh, conditions as to why we could evolve the way that we are. We are just great, and you niggas are just niggas. That's just what it is, and I'm so sorry that it had to be that way, but we are putting it down. We are rocking the rest of you. <laughs> like, that's just the way it comes, which is, to me at least, seems like a, a significant uh, difference from the impression that I took from guns, germs, and steel. Uh, thus far, I'm still watching it. I have the last uh, section to go. Um, let's see. He continues. He throws around the term civilized a lot as well. I uh, really appreciate Mr. Fuller just asking questions with these type of terms, even terms like that that you probably hear frequently, civilized. Uh, what does it mean to be civilized? Can a racist be civilized? Is it civilized to practice white supremacy and then just get to the bottom line? You only qualify for being civilized when you practice justice. Uh, I think that let's just get to uh, the meat of things quickly. Uh, where he continues where he says the declining that bam, we got to that portion right there when he starts talking about uh, the birth rate of white people and all of these problems it's like, I know, Dr. Welsing really had to peek up here I, I'm sure she read with great attention uh, to the entirety of the book, but I'm sure that because it, it resonates with the core of her theory and what she spent decades of her life doing, so that portion really resonated when he started talking all this about the birth rates, the contradiction within all of this was also very glaring for me as he talks about the greatness uh, of the global white minority even though he lies and says that they're a third of the planet's population and how great and cool the Nordics are amongst all of the white people where it's consistently almost went extinct all of these problems they had all of these wars and they went out and did all these expositions and explorations and uh, their numbers just dwindled and they did all this fighting and Oh, man, it just really messed up their population and they weren't even growing and the birth rate was really high. And if these people are so great, if the individuals classified as white are so cool and so well endowed and so smart and just light years ahead of the rest of us heathen negras on the planet, then they certainly should not have any problems procreating that to me the lie right there uh, about white superiority uh, in terms of what he's saying in this book not saying white supremacy is a lie saying white superiority uh, that there is something uh, genetically just really really special above and beyond what everybody who everybody else all the non-white people uh, what we got uh, from the creator or sky daddy or whomever they think is responsible for human and uh, human ge uh, genetics um, where he continues, uh, where he says, I felt like during the first half of the book, and I think we've pretty much read about half, during the first half, I think he focused a lot on non-white people and non-white people being in solidarity, particularly when you start having black people and Asian people and non-white people from all over working together and recognizing whites as an enemy, a threat that is a problem for white people. I feel like this week he emphasized a lot of white infighting uh, and ending kind of with World War One and what a disaster and this is terrible and we're going to mess the whole thing up, uh, arguing and griping 
uh, amongst ourselves, and he kind of blasts some of these uh, ideas, concepts that were coming out uh, that were festering, promoting this disunion amongst whites uh, at the beginning of the 20th century. Uh, I don't know what he would have had to say seeing this coming up again uh, in World War II where whites are arguing and uh, bickering uh, amongst themselves. Even there, there seemed to be a bit of contradiction where he talks about the innate nature of white solidarity and it being so innate that at times whites don't recognize it so they can fight and brawl uh, amongst themselves. I know Dr. Marimba Ani and Yerugu, that was the very first book we did on the book club. She spent a lot of time talking about how whites, I mean, there's an extensive, undeniable history of whites uh, savaging, killing, brutalizing each other. That That's how they got so good at fighting. I think he said that in this week's uh, portion of the text uh, as well, that the only thing uh, that allowed whites to coalesce, much like what you saw in this election, or in fact, I would submit even over the last two, three uh, U.S. presidential elections, is racism uh, and them needing to coalesce and work together to dominate, abuse black people. That is what got white people to uh, work together. But if it wasn't for that, I don't see any evidence of any historic or innate uh, white uh, cooperation uh, amongst the global white minority. Uh, continuing Madison Grant, he wrote he referenced him twice in this week's section of the book. Madison Grant wrote the uh, lengthy introduction uh, to this book and also uh, was a author of the same time period and wrote about the exact same subject matter, eugenics, white supremacy, flagrantly uh, in the early 20th century, uh, where he continues. And the term, even when he says Alpines and Mediterraneans and hence to disappear, uh, this is a little bit later, I can give the full uh, sentence. He says, but in all those regions which typify the transformation of the Industrial Revolution, the Nordics do not fit into the altered environment as well as either Alpines or Mediterraneans and hence tend to disappear. Again, talking about some of uh, what Mel brought out about whites not choosing uh, to live in all the same geographic locations. Some areas are better for them than others uh, where when he used the term specifically disappear, it reminded me of Mr. Edward Williams. Uh, I've heard him say before that he's heard that term and he always has a question. Uh, he says, I've never seen someone disappear as though we're talking about a magic trick of some sort. Uh, if, you know, he would need more detail in terms of what you mean when you say disappear. Are you saying that these individuals are dying? Uh, are you saying that they're leaving? What's happening to them exactly? Um, just to make sure that we're being very explicit uh, about all of that. Uh, I think those type of terms get used regularly. I think that's important in the system of white supremacy because whites uh, have a tendency of not disappearing. They will just reclassify. I think that's also really important to keep in mind for all of this. With all these classifications, uh, Nordics, Alpines, Mediterraneans, all of these classifications they can ball all that up in the trash and come up with a whole new set of classifications tomorrow and divvy them up how they want to. I think that's the most important thing to keep in mind. There is certainly uh, a loose correlation with a biological element, but at the end of the day, all of this is, it is what we say it is. And that's the voice, the authority of racist man, racist woman. Um, I will... I did want to say also about those statistics. I think I've already stated as have some of the listeners about the bogus nature where whites can just go and make things up as they will. Some of this information is just flagrantly false, could be, you know, deliberately so to just deceive us, deceive readers. Uh, but I think with those statistics where he's talking about the uh, 
the size in terms of the actual square miles uh, of the planet that white people dominate and the, the global populations and uh, the amount of global exchange uh, in a given year and how it's multiplied over a number of uh, decades. One thing that I do think is significant with all of that, it shows the grand scale that white supremacists think. Uh, again, I'm not disputing, uh, and I think I'd say before myself that, you know, some of this stuff sounds bogus to me and he's just throwing stuff out there. Whites do that sort of thing on a regular basis. See the polling for the recent presidential election in the U.S. But just the grandness of it all, when you think, when you, you know, say, hey, we're going to dominate the entire planet and we're going to do so for the next, you know, 10,000 years. You have to think on a large scale. And I see that come across in this book on a regular basis. I see that with the system of racism, white supremacy on a regular basis, thinking on a really, really large scale. And conversely, keeping black people, our vision, very, very restricted so that we have a very limited niggerish focus. That's actually the definition of the term uh, niggerish or niggardly. Um, I think... I think I will stop there. I will say that racists do uh, network and share information on how to dominate and abuse other black people. Reminded me of Edward Baptist. First book that we read in the book club this year, his book, Slavery, uh, The Half Has Never Been Told, where you talked about how white enslavers, they would swap information about how to break slaves uh, and whip and make sure they could get the maximum efficiency from their uh, Negro workers on the plantation. They shared a lot of details, uh, but I will stop there. If other folks have information they would like to share, uh, we have about five minutes or so before we get to the second audio segment. Feel free. I did have one question I wanted to throw out as well. People can respond to today or as we proceed. Why do we think Lothrop Stoddard wrote this book? Do we think the intended audience would white people? At least to me, it seems like for sure the intended audience would be white people. But why would he be writing this book to whites in 1920? Did he think white people were slacking on their dedication to practicing white supremacy? Did he think white people were at risk of maybe having too many fights with each other or kind of getting losing focus on what they were supposed to be doing? Why do we think he wrote this book ostensibly for whites in 1920? Throw that out there as well. Other folks have commentary they wanted to get in uh, before we get to the second audio segment. Uh, can I be heard? Yes, sir. Um, thanks, thanks for taking my call, Gus. Um, I think he wrote the book in 1920. It was written as a warning, but I don't think he really wrote it for the people of that time. I think he wrote it for the people that are alive right now and for their descendants in perpetuity. And it is, to me, it is the, like, I would say it's probably that this book, if it's all the lies and, and propaganda in it, this would be a Bible for white supremacists. Just the way that it's written, the lies he's telling, um, his double speak, because white people wouldn't read into this with the scrutiny that we do as counter racists. They would read into this and literally swallow every word that he's saying. And in their minds, it would make total sense lies included, you know, incongruent sentences, all the stuff that doesn't match would make sense to them because they're racist as well. So he literally, to me, is speaking to the white psyche on such a profoundly deep level that, um, that I think that this is a book that I think every white supremacist group that's around has, has read and probably reads repeatedly, in my opinion. Um, 
and I think he wrote it for white posterity. I don't think he necessarily wrote it for the people of the 1920s. I think he wrote it for their descendant generations. Um, like I said, in perpetuity, for them to go back to this book, for them, for him to remind them of what they're facing as far as white genetic annihilation and what they must do in order to maintain their whiteness. Um, I wanted to touch before we get to the next section on page 98, he wrote something that I found very telling. Um, he says, of course, the white world's internal frictions have been legion. And at certain times, these frictions have become so acute that white men have been led to disregard or even deny their fundamental unity. This is perhaps also because white solidarity is so pervasive that we live in it and thus ordinarily do not perceive it more than we do the air we breathe. Should white men ever really lose their instinct of race solidarity, they would asphyxiate racially as swiftly and surely as they would asphyxiate physically if the atmospheric oxygen should suddenly be withdrawn. I think this is that paragraph speaks to why it was written for posterity, and I love the fact that he, he equates racism white supremacy to oxygen. So when we speak of the religion of white supremacy, it is oxygen for white people. This is the, the DNA foundation of every aspect of white existence, and that is why we are living the hell that we are living and have been for so long. This, I think, is one of the most telling paragraphs in the entire book, and I think it will probably end up remaining one of the most telling paragraphs in the book, even once we get to the end. And I think that's some, something that we should really think about very, very deeply, that they would asphyxiate if they did not practice racism, white supremacy. So that lets us know that when we decide to really make a choice or someone comes up with a solution, it has to be swift, scientific, non-emotional, and the most thorough eradication of white supremacy ever. We can't make any mistakes because if we give that, them a chance to rise back up again, they will annihilate us all. And that's what they're already working towards slowly, but I think they would accelerate that like a thousandfold. Thank you, and I'll meet my line. Grand, grand. Had that... Uh metaphor checked as well uh other folks anybody else have a quick comment they want to get in before we get to the second audio segment yes Yes, sir mr demi four oh just the um the last thing that i was mentioning before you spoke about it but the book says as a matter of fact white Solidarity has been one of the great constants of history for ages. The white people have possessed a true symbol, symbolicist, and common life, ceaselessly mingling their blood and exchanging their ideals. And that part about White solidarity is probably one of the truest portions of the book. So I'll mute my line on that. Thanks, sir. For sure. Uh, we will pause here. Uh, we will pick things back up. We're actually in Chapter 8, even. Moved along a little further than I thought. So we're in Chapter 8, uh, where he is uh, lamenting the brawl of World War One. Uh, we should be picking up the paragraph, it says, even in the first frenzied hours of August 1914, wise men realized the horror that stood upon the threshold. That's what we should be picking up at uh, in kind of the middle 
of uh, chapter 8. Uh, but this is second audio segment, Lothrop Stoddard, The Rising Tide of Color Against White World Supremacy. Audio segment number two, Context of White Supremacy. Even in the first frenzied hours of August 1914, wise men realized the horror that stood upon the threshold. The crowd might cheer, but the reflective already mourned in prospect the losses which were in store. As the English writer Harold Begbie then said, quote, Remember this, among the young conscript soldiers of Europe who will die in thousands, and perhaps millions, are the very flower of civilization. We shall destroy brains which might have discovered for us in ten or twenty years easements for the worst of human pains, and solutions for the worst of social dangers. We shall blot these souls out of our common existence. We shall destroy utterly those splendid burning spirits reaching out to enlighten our darkness. Our fathers destroyed those strange and valuable creatures whom they called witches. We are destroying the brightest of our angels. End quote. But it is doubtful. If any of these seers realized the full price which the race was destined to pay during more than four long agonizing years, Never before had war shown itself such an unerring gleaner of the best racial values. As early as the summer of 1915, Mr. Will Irwin, an American war correspondent, remarked the growing convictions among all classes, soldiers as well as civilians, that the war was fatally impoverishing the race. Quote, I have talked, end quote, he wrote, quote, with British officers and British Tommies, with English ladies of fashion and English housewives with French deputies and French cabmen. And in all minds alike, I find the same idea fixed. What is to become of the French race and the British race? Yes, and the German race, if this thing keeps up. End quote. Mr. Irwin then goes on to describe the cumulative process by which the fittest were selected for death. Quote, I take it for granted, end quote. He says, quote, that... In a general way, the bravest are the best, physically and spiritually. Now, in this war of machinery, the meat mill, it is the bravest who lead the charges and attempt the daring feats, and, correspondingly, the loss is greatest among those bravest. So much when the army gets into line. But in the conscript countries, like France and Germany, there is a process of selection in picking the army by which the best, speaking in general terms, go out to die while the weakest remain, the undersized, the undermuscled, the underbrained, the men twisted by hereditary deformity or devitalized by hereditary disease, they remain at home to propagate the breed. The rest, all the rest, go out to take chances. Furthermore, as modern conscript armies are organized, it is the youngest men who sustain the heaviest losses, the men who are not yet fathers. And from the point of view of the race, that is, perhaps, the most melancholy fact of all. All the able-bodied men between the ages of 19 and 45 are in the ranks, but the older men do not take many chances with the death. These European conscript armies are arranged in classes according to age, and the younger classes are the men who do the most of the actual fighting. The men in their late 30s or their 40s, the territorials, guard the lines, garrison the towns, generally attend to the business of running up the supplies. When we come to gather the statistics of this war, we shall find that an overwhelming majority of the dead were less than 30 years old, and probably that the majority were under 25. Now, the territorial of 40 or 45 has usually given to the state as many children as he is going to give, 
while the man of 25 or under has usually given to the state no children at all. End quote. Mr. Irwin was gauging the racial cost by the criterion of youth. A leading English scholar, Mr. H. A. L. Fisher, obtained equally alarming results by applying the test of genius. He analyzed the casualty lists, quote, filled with names which, but for the fatal accidents of war, would certainly have been made illustrious for splendid service to the great cause of life. A government actuated by a cold calculus of economic efficiency would have made some provision for sheltering from the hazards of war young men on whose exceptional intellectual powers our future progress might be thought to depend. But this has not been done, and it is impossible to estimate the extent to which the world will be impoverished in quality by the disappearance of so much youthful genius and talent. The spiritual loss to the universe cannot be computed, and probably will exceed the injury inflicted on the world by the wide and protracted prevalence of the celibate orders in the Middle Ages. End quote. The American biologist S.K. Humphrey did not underestimate the extent of the slaughter of genius-bearing strains when he wrote, quote, it is safe to say that among the millions killed will be a million who are carrying superlatively effective inheritances, the dependence of the race's future. Nothing is more absurd than the notion that those inheritances can be replaced in a few generations by encouraging the fecundity of the survivors. They are gone forever. The survivors are going to reproduce their own less valuable kind. Words fail to convey the appalling nature of the loss. End quote. It is the same melancholy tale when we apply the test of race. Of course, the war bore heavily on all the white race stocks, but it was the Nordics, the best of all human breeds, who suffered far and away the greatest losses. War, as we have seen, was always the Nordics' deadliest scourge, and never was this truer than in the late struggle. From the racial standpoint, indeed, Armageddon was a Nordic civil war. Most of the officers and a large portion of the men on both sides belonging to the Nordic race. Everywhere it was the same story. The Nordic went forth eagerly to battle, while the more stolid Alpine and, above all, the little brunette Mediterranean either stayed at home or even when, at the front, showed less fighting spirit, took fewer chances and oftener saved their skins. The Great War has thus unquestionably left Europe much poorer in Nordic blood while conversely it has relatively favored the Mediterraneans. Madison Grant well says, quote, As in all wars since Roman times, from the breeding point of view, the little dark man is the final winner. End quote. Furthermore, it must be remembered that those dysgenic effects which I have been discussing refer solely to losses inflicted upon the actual combatants. But we have already seen that for every soldier killed, the war took five civilian lives. In fact, the war's profoundly devitalizing effects upon the general population can hardly be overestimated. Those effects include not merely such obvious matters as privation and disease, but also obscure yet highly destructive factors like nervous shock and prolonged overstrain. To take merely one instance, consider Havelock Ellis's remarks concerning, quote, the ever-widening circles of anguish and misery, and destitution which every fatal bullet imposes on humanity, end quote. He concludes, quote, It is probable that for every 10 million soldiers who fall on the field, 
50 million other persons at home are plunged into grief or poverty or some form of life-diminishing trouble, end quote. Most serious has been the war's effect upon the children. At home, as at the front, it is the young who have been sacrificed. The heaviest civilian losses have come through increased infant mortality and decreased birth rates. The, quote, slaughter of the innocents, end quote, has been twofold. It has slain millions of those already alive, and it has prevented millions more from being born or conceived. The decreased fecundity of women during the war, even under good material conditions, apparently shows that war's psychological reflexes tend to induce sterility. An Italian savant, Professor Sergi, has elaborated this hypothesis in considerable detail. He contends that, quote, war continued for a long time is the origin of the phenomenon relative sterility, not only in the absolute sense of the loss of men in battle, but also through a series of special conditions which arise simultaneously with an unbalancing of vital processes and which create in the latter a complex phenomenon difficult to examine in every one of its elements. The biological disturbance does not derive solely from the destruction of young lives, the ones best adapted to fecundity, but also from the unfavorable conditions into which a nation is unexpectedly thrown. From these come disorders of a mental and sentimental nature, nervousness, anxiety, grief, and pain of all kinds, to which the serious economic conditions of wartime also contribute. All these things have a harmful effect on the general organic economy of nations. End quote. From the combination of these losses on the battlefield and in the cradle arises what the biologist Dr. Salibi terms, quote, the menace of the dearest of youth, end quote. The European populations today contain an undue proportion of adults and the aged, while, quote, the younger generation is no longer knocking at the door. We, since may grow old in peace, but the facts bode ill for our national future, end quote. Furthermore, this dearest of youth will not be easily repaired. The war may be over, but its aftermath is only a degree less unfavorable to human multiplication, especially of the better kinds. Bad industrial conditions and the fearfully high cost of living continue to depress the birth rate of all save the most reckless and improvident elements, whose increase is a curse rather than a blessing. To show only one of the many causes that today keep down the birth rate, Take the crushing burden of taxation, which hits especially the increase of the upper classes. The London Saturday Review recently explained this very clearly when it wrote, quote, From a man with 2,000 pounds a year, the tax gatherer takes 600 pounds. The remaining 1,400 pounds, owing to the decreased value of money, has a purchasing power about equal of 700 pounds a year before the war. No young man will therefore think of marrying on less than 2,000 pounds a year. We are thinking of the young man in the upper and middle classes. The man who starts with nothing does not, as a rule, arrive at 2,000 pounds a year until he's past the marrying age. So the continuance of the species will be carried on almost exclusively by the class of manual workers of a low average caliber of brain. The matter is very serious. Reading the letters and memoirs a 100 years ago one is struck by the size of the families of the aristocracy. One smiles at reading of Fitzgerald's. Fourteen or fifteen children were not at all unusual among the country's families. End quote. 
Europe's convalescence must, at the very best, be a slow and difficult one. Both materially and spiritually, the situation is the reverse of bright. To begin with, the political situation is highly unsatisfactory. The diplomatic arrangements made by the Versailles Peace Conference offer neither stability nor permanence. In the next chapter, I shall have more to say about the Versailles Conference. For the moment, let me quote the observations of the well-known British publicist J.L. Garvin, who adequately summarizes the situation when he says, quote, As matters stand, no great war ever was followed by a more disquieting and limited peace. Everywhere, the democratic atmosphere is charged with agitation. There is still war or anarchy, or both, between the Baltic and the Pacific across a sixth part of the whole earth. Without a restored Russia, no outlook can be confident. Either a Bolshevist or reactionary or even a patriotic junction between Germany and Russia might disrupt civilization as violently as before or to even worse effect. End quote. Political uncertainty is a poor basis on which to rebuild Europe's shattered economic life, and this economic reconstruction would, under the most favorable circumstances, be very difficult. We have already seen how, owing to the Industrial Revolution, Europe became the world's chief workshop, exporting manufactured products in return for foodstuffs to feed its workers and raw materials to feed its machines, these imports being drawn from the four quarters of the globe. In other words, Europe had ceased to be self-sufficing, the very life of its industries and its urban populations being dependent upon foreign importations from the most distant regions. Europe's prosperity before the war was due to the development of a marvelous system of world trade, intricate, nicely adjusted, functioning with great efficiency, and running at high speed. Then down upon this delicately organized mechanism crashed the trip hammer of the Great War, literally smashing it to pieces. To reconstruct so intricate a fabric takes time. Meanwhile, how are the huge urban masses to live, unfitted and unable as they are to draw their sustenance from their native soil? If their sufferings becomes too great, there is a real danger that all Europe may collapse into hopeless chaos. Mr. Frank A. Vanderlip did not overstate the danger when he wrote, quote, I believe it is possible that there may be let loose in Europe forces that will be more terribly destructive than have been the forces of the Great War, end quote. The best description of Europe's economic situation is undoubtedly that of Mr. Herbert Hoover, who from his experience as inter-allied food controller is peculiarly qualified to pass authoritative judgment. Says Mr. Hoover, quote, The economic difficulties of Europe as a whole at the signature of peace may be almost summarized in the phrase demoralized productivity. The production of necessaries for this 450 million population, including Russia, has never been at so low an ebb as at this day. A summary of the unemployment bureaus in Europe will show that 15 million families are receiving unemployment allowances in one form or another, and are, in the main, being paid by constant inflation of currency. A rough estimate would indicate that the population of Europe is at least 100 million greater than can be supported without imports, and must live by the production and distribution of exports. And their situation is aggravated not only by the lack of raw materials and imports, but also by low production of European raw materials. 
Due to the same low production, Europe is today importing vast quantities of certain commodities which she formerly produced for herself and can again produce. Generally, in production, she's not only far below even the level of the time of the signing of the armistice, but far below the maintenance of life and health without an unparalleled rate of import. From all these causes, accumulated to different intensity in different localities, there is the essential fact that, unless productivity can be rapidly increased, there can be nothing but political, moral, and economic chaos, finally interpreting itself in loss of life on a scale hitherto undreamed of. End quote. Such are the material and vital losses inflicted by the Great War. They are prodigious, and they will not easily be repaired. Europe starts its reconstruction under heavy handicaps, not the least of these being the drain upon its superior stocks, which has deprived it of much of the creative energy that it so desperately needs. Those 16 million or more dead or incapacitated soldiers represented the flower of Europe's young manhood, the very men who are especially needed today. It is young men who normally alone possess both maximum driving power and maximum plasticity of mind. All the European belligerents are dangerously impoverished in their stock of youth. The resultant handicap, both to Europe's working ability and Europe's brain activity, is only too plain. Moreover, material and even vital losses do not tell the whole story. The moral and spiritual losses, though not easily measured, are perhaps even more appalling. In fact, the darkest cloud on the horizon is possibly the danger that Reconstruction will be primarily material at the expense of moral and spiritual values, thus leading to a warped development even more pronounced than that of the 19th century and leading inevitably to yet more disastrous consequences. The danger of purely material reconstruction is of course the peril which lurks behind every great war, and which in the past has wrought such tragic havoc. At the beginning of the late war, we heard much talk of its morally regenerative effects. But as the grim holocaust went on year after year, far-sighted moralists warned against a fatal drain of Europe's idealistic forces which might break the thin crust of European civilization, so painfully wrought since the Dark Ages. That these warning voices were not without reason is proved by the chaos of spiritual, moral, and even intellectual values which exists in Europe today, giving play to such monstrous insanities as Bolshevism. The danger is that this chaos may be prolonged and deepened by the complex of two concurrent factors, spiritual drain during the war and spiritual neglect in the immediate future due to over-concentration upon material reconstruction. Many of the world's best minds are seriously concerned at the outlook. For example, Dr. Gore, the Bishop of Oxford, writes, quote, there is the usual depression and lowering of moral aims which always follows times of war. For the real terror of time of war is not during the war. Then, war has certain very ennobling powers. It is after war periods which are the curse of the world, and it looks as if the same were going to prove true of this war. I own that I never felt anxiety such as I do now. I think the aspect of things has never been so dark as at this moment. I think the temper of the nations has degraded since the declaration of the armistice to a degree that is almost terrifying. End quote. The intellectual impoverishment wrought by the war is well summarized by Professor C. G. Shaw. Quote, we did more before the war 
than we shall do after it, he writes, quote, War will have so exhausted man's powers of action and thought that he will have little wit or will left for the promotion of anything over and above necessary repair, end quote. Europe's general impoverishment in all respects was vividly portrayed by a leading article of the London Saturday Review entitled The True Destructiveness of War, pointing to the devastated areas of northern France as merely symptomatic of the devastation wrought in spiritual as well as material fields, it said, quote, Reflection only adds to the effect upon us of these miles of wasted country and ruined towns. All this represents not a thousandth part of the desolation which the war has brought upon our civilization. These devastated areas scarring the face of Europe are but a symbol of the desolation which will shadow the life of the world for at least a generation. The coming years will be bleak in respect of all the generous and gracious things which are the products of leisure and of minds not wholly taken up by the necessity to live by bread alone. For a generation, the world will have to concentrate upon material problems. The tragedy of the Great War, a tragedy which enhances the desolation of reigns, is that it should have killed almost everything which the best of our soldiers died to preserve, and that it should have raised more problems than it has solved. We would sacrifice a dozen cathedrals to preserve what the war has destroyed in England. We would readily surrender our ten best cathedrals to be battered by the artillery of Hindenburg, as a ransom. Surely it would be better to lose Westminster Abbey than never again to have anybody worthy to be buried there. End quote. Europe is indeed passing through the most critical spiritual phase of the war's aftermath, what I may term the zero hour of the spirit. When the trenches used to fill with infantry waiting in the first cold flicker of the dawn for the signal to go over the top, they called it the zero hour. Well, Europe now faces the zero hour of peace. It is neither a pleasant nor a stimulating moment. The tumult and the shouting have died. The captains, kings, and presidents have departed. War's hectic urge wanes. Losses are counted. The heroic pose is dropped. Such is the moment when the peoples are bidden to go over the top once more, this time toward peace objectives no less difficult than those of the battlefield. Weakened, tired Europe knows this, feels this, and dreads the plunge into the unknown. Hence the malaise of the zero hour. The extraordinary turmoil of the European soul is strikingly set forth by the French thinker Paul Valéry. Quote, we civilizations, end quote, he writes, quote, now know that we are mortal. We had heard tell of whole worlds vanished of empires gone to the bottom with all their engines, sunk to the inexplorable bottom of the centuries with their gods and their laws, their academies, their science, pure and applied, their grammars, their dictionaries, their classics, their romantics, and their symbolists, their critics, and their critics' critics. We know well that all the apparent earth is made of ashes, and that ashes have a meaning. We perceived, through the mists of history, Phantoms and huge ships laden with riches and spiritual things. We could not count them. But these wrecks, after all, were no concern of ours. Elam, Nineveh, Babylon were vague and lovely names. And the total ruin of these worlds meant as little to us as their very existence. But France, England, Russia, these would also be lovely names. Lusitania also is a lovely name. 
and now we see that the abyss of history is large enough for everyone. We feel that a civilization is as fragile as life. Circumstances which would send the works of Boldere and Keats to rejoin the works of Menander are no longer in the least inconceivable. They are in all the newspapers. Thus, the spiritual Persepolis is ravaged equally with the material Susa. All is not lost, but everything has felt itself perish. An extraordinary tremor has run through the spinal marrow of Europe. It is felt in all its thinking substance that it recognized itself no longer, that it no longer resembled itself, that it was about to lose consciousness, a consciousness acquired by centuries of tolerable disasters, by thousands of men of the first rank, by geographical, racial, historic chances innumerable. The military crisis is perhaps at an end. The economic crisis is visibly at its zenith. But the intellectual crisis, it is with difficulty that we can seize its true center, its exact phase. The facts, however, are clear and pitiless. There are thousands of young writers and young artists who are dead. There is the lost illusion of a European culture and the demonstration of the impotence of knowledge to save anything whatever. There is science mortally wounded in its moral ambitions and, as it were, dishonored by its applications. There is idealism, victor with difficulty, grievously mutilated, responsible for its dreams. Realism, deceived, beaten, with crimes and misdeeds heaped upon it. Covetousness and renunciation equally put out. Religions confused among the armies, cross against cross, crescent against crescent. There are the skeptics themselves, disconcerted by events so sudden, so violent, and so moving, which play with our thoughts as a cat with a mouse. The skeptics lose their doubts, rediscover them, lose them again, and can no longer make use of the movements of their minds. The rolling of the ship has been so heavy that at the last, the best hung lamps have been upset. From an immense terrace of Elsinore, which extends from Basel to Cologne, and touches the sands of Newport, the marshes of Saône, the chalk of Champagne, and the granite of Alsace, the hamlet of Europe, now looks upon millions of ghosts. End quote. Such is Europe's deplorable condition as she staggers forth from the hideous ordeal of the Great War. Her fluid capital dissipated, her fixed capital impaired, her industrial fabric rent and tattered, her finances threatened with bankruptcy the flower of her manhood dead on the battlefield, her populations devitalized and discouraged, her children stunted by malnutrition. A somber picture. And Europe is the white homeland, the heart of the white world. It is Europe that has suffered practically all the losses of Armageddon, which may be considered the white civil war. The colored world remains virtually unscathed. Here's the truth of the matter. The white world today stands at the crossroads of life and death. It stands where the Greek world stood at the close of the Peloponnesian War. A fever has racked the white frame and undermined its constitution. The unsound therapeutics of its diplomatic practitioners retard convalescence and endanger real recovery. Worst of all, the instinct of race solidarity has partially atrophied. Grave as is the situation, it is not yet irreparable, any more than Greece's condition was hopeless after agospotomy. It was not the Peloponnesian War which sealed Hellas's doom. 
but the cycle of political anarchy and moral chaos of which the Peloponnesian War was merely the opening phase. Our world is too vigorous for even the great war of itself to prove a mortal wound. The white world thus still has its choice, but it must be a positive choice. Decisions, firm decisions, must be made. Constructive measures, drastic measures, must be taken. Above all, time presses, and drift is fatal. The tide ebbs. The swimmer must put forth strong strokes to reach the shore, else swift oblivion in the dark ocean. Not the ocean. The dark ocean. Niggers have probably been there too. Context of white supremacy. We will be back next week. Uh, that will be our fifth study session. I think we are we're probably going to have like three of these sessions left. Uh, we will hopefully not compromise any more of Mel and her partner's time. Uh, three more and we will be all done. Uh, and listeners, you all can uh, vote uh, for what our next book is going to be. Uh, I personally would vote for Gwen Eiffel's book, The Breakthrough, uh, about racism, white supremacy from a black journalist. She just passed away this week. Uh, but we can vote. We want to pick a novel since this is kind of a dense read. If folks want to pick something, uh, some fiction or what have you, that would be fine as well. I am not reading. Be very clear about that. If people pick something where there is no audiobook, Gus is not reading, and if that means that we're not able to do the book, then oh well. Uh, but you can just drop an email until justice at gmail.com. Until justice at gmail.com. I would vote for Gwen Eiffel. I don't know if there's an audiobook uh, of the breakthrough or not. If it does not exist, then maybe we can get some black females to volunteer and read, but for sure, I'm not doing it. If you would like to dial in, the number 641 715 36 Four zero and the code is five six four nine four three pound. Press star six if you would like to participate. Uh, all the folks who dialed in, uh, your line should be open. We have about a half hour, so it should be ample time for folks to uh, share their commentary. And I think we might even have Mel on deck to share her thoughts on the debate between uh, Stoddard and W.E.B. Dubois. Uh, everyone who dialed in with a hand up should be with us. Can I be heard? Come out here. Oh, great. Uh, was uh, listening to the reading and lots of foreshadowing on, on World War II in this one. Uh, when he talked about the, uh, um, I think it was uh, one of the pages, one of the quotes where he was talking about uh, Germany and Russia might disrupt civilization. Well, they they got together in the beginning of World War II uh, for a minute, but then the Germans turned on uh, Russia after that. So lots of uh, lots of foreshadowing uh, World War II. Also, too, the this chapter of the Peloponnesian War, uh, well, the the modern Peloponnesian War, as he references the uh, the original Peloponnesian War to I guess World War One. It's it's interesting because. Uh, a lot of military academies uh, make uh, make their uh, officers study this war um, for military strategy, but I also think that they also do it for political. Um, and you know, as Lopper Stoddard has uh, uh, 
came out with in this chapter about the racial aspect of of uh, of why Greece, you know, failed because they fell to a well, what he calls an inferior stock of people that you know that ran the the uh, that ran Greece into the ground, I guess. So, um, just uh, yeah, just just my observation right now. I'll meet my line. Person that spoke up simultaneously. Uh, did you have commentary? Uh, oh yeah, can I be heard? Yes, sir. Oh, okay, uh, greetings, Gus. Um, Gus, before I start, quick question. Um, question for you, and then um, did you say earlier the term Sky Daddy? Is that what you said? Right, Jeremiah Kamara used that when he was on the program. Uh, some okay. <laughs> okay, uh, I'll, I'll just find that. And then um, if we have commentary about the debate, should, do we just share that later, or can we share that now? Uh, feel free. You can share it now if you like. Okay. Um, I'll get to that last couple things. Um, he had uh, mentioned the term and he put a reproduce less valuable kind. And what I've been doing is reading this and then also looking at my uh, word guide and looking up the word he uses valuable a lot. And Mr. Fuller just had the note real quick. It says <laughs> during the existence of white supremacy, it is those white persons who practice racism who tell non-white persons what is and what is not valuable. During the existence of white supremacy is the white supremacist, racist man, and racist woman who dictate to non-white people what is, who, and who is not important. And just when you were speaking about who was this book written to, if a person was confused or even someone that was in academics around this time, even somebody that was probably non-white, they would probably try to, they'd probably start believing some of this stuff because of his words, his verbiage, and just some of those just some of the, the terms he used. Also, he mentioned marvelous system of world trade. Um, I think that most of us on this call realize that a lot of that system had to do uh, specifically with black people. Um, one thing that I was I wanted to maybe see if the callers could give us a little bit more feedback on was he used the terms moral and spiritual losses cannot be measured. And specifically what he meant by the spiritual losses of, of those Nordic people that were dying. Um, and then the last term is that with, that he used was Europe was the heart of the white world. And I'm trying to figure out specifically what he means by that in today's terms, um, where it kind of seems like that it took a little bit of a turn with the United States possibly being the heart of the white world, but I could be wrong about that. Um, in reference to the debate, there were only about two things that I really just, that stood out to me. I mean, DuBois did a great job, but this gentleman just lied um, through his teeth and everything that he was saying. And the first thing, the first four sentences he says is that nothing, like Gus said, is uh, nothing is more important than delusion. But it says, at the time of emancipation, certain white enthusiasts promised the Negro full social equality and racial amalgamation. I hope I said that correct. All that has proven uh, proved to be a dream. And just that sentence right there, it acts as if white people had nothing to do with this problem through the whole paragraph. And I even read it three times when I was at the office and then when I came home today. And he doesn't mention slavery. And it's almost as if the Negro problem that and the, the, the cultural things that were going on with people and every time that black people try to do anything, it's all their fault and that white people literally 
had nothing to do with it. Almost as if, almost as if that black people have always tried and they failed. Whereas the delusion is that every time that we have tried to do something constructive, we have always in some form or in any area of activity have had some form of white interference. I don't care what it is. And I just think that he's just trying to make an argument that the Negro and this, these words like Negro dumb, I had to, I, <laughs> I don't even know what that is, but it's just pathetic. And um, I'm sorry, you guys might be, you know, you guys might understand a little bit of this stuff, but just reading it simply, it says he's just full of crap. And I also, I really do think that he wrote a lot of this stuff possibly for black people to pick it up and to kind of start to think lowly of themselves because it's sort of like the Tim Wise theory. If it sounds good and it's intellectual, you might start to pick up on it and believe it instead of just using common sense. Thank you. I'll meet my mind. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Uh, yes, uh, great to see you guys. Great observations to the previous callers. Um, one thing I remember, because there was a section of um, Ben Tillman and the Reconstruction of White Supremacy that I used in an essay that I wrote about white supremacy, and in it, they discussed how the best men of the community were the men who would go around lynching black people and practice, practicing the most violent forms of racism. and for them in that book to describe the best white people as being the most violent practitioners of white supremacy, I'm reading this book brings me to the realization, especially once the previous caller was discussing just how much of a liar he is, because I haven't gotten to read the um, debate as of yet. I'm going to read it this weekend, so I should have something to say about it next week. But I'm finding that the best intellectuals that are of white descent are liars. So it's, it's everything about white people, their DNA is criminal. Like everything they do has, a, has some lie, some obfuscation, or just outright criminality at the core of it when you get to it. And that to me, this book speaks to the fact that the best that white people have to offer are the most virulent and refined white supremacist liars that you'll ever come across. Um, to get to the text itself, there's a section on page 108 where he writes, uh, political uncertainty is a poor basis on which to rebuild Europe's shattered economic life. And this economic reconstruction would, under the most favorable circumstances, be difficult. We have already seen how, owing to the Industrial Revolution, Europe became the world's chief workshop, exporting manufactured products in return for foodstuffs to feed its workers and raw materials to feed its machines. These imports being drawn from the four quarters of the globe and other, excuse me, these uh, imports being drawn from the four quarters of the globe. In other words, Europe had ceased to be self-sufficing. The very life of its industries and its urban populations being dependent on foreign importations from the most distant regions. Europe's prosperity before the war was due to the development of a marvelous system of world trade, intricate, nicely adjusted, functioning with great efficiency and running at high speed. And I think the previous caller alluded to this. What I find very interesting about this text is that when he discusses Europe's industrial revolution and that they became the uh, world's chief workshop and they were exporting manufactured products in return for foodstuff, 
their industrial revolution came from the vampiring and pillaging of these four far quarters of the of the world that they, that he is speaking of. Also, like Dr. John Henry Clark, the the um, food stuff that they were bringing was basically uh, seasonings and things of that nature to season what John, Dr. John Henry Clark called their god awful food. So they were basically just learning about the importance of these types of things like salt and how salt would be used to preserve things before the Industrial Revolution. It was salt that was the original refrigerator. So they were basically, what he's saying is they've been, they were vampiring the rest of the world and basically instated such a nice, intricate system of white supremacy, which they call world trade. And I find that to be very interesting because world trade, as we know it today, is this, it's the same exact system today that it was then. It's just a more refined version of the pillaging of non-white people from, like he said, the four quarters of the, of the planet. So I just find that very interesting. And he says it is nicely adjusted, uh, intricate, nicely adjusted, functioning with great efficiency and running at high speed. So what he's saying there is a refined version of we're brutalizing these non-white people to the point that they're moving at the speed that we dictate, the same way that they would beat our ancestors into um, picking, uh, let's say, 500 pounds of cotton per day. And if you didn't, you, they would whip you senseless every, every day that you didn't reach the number that you were brutalized into reaching. Um, he wrote on the following page on 110, he wrote, there's uh, the usual depression and lowering of moral aims, which always follows times of war. For the real terror of the time of war is not during the war. Then war has certainly very ennobling powers. It is after war periods, which are the curse of the world. And it looks like the same, looks like, looks as if the same severe is going to prove true of this war. And what I find interesting about this is that he says here that the real terror of the time of war is not during the war. So this is saying that white people love the whole idea of killing, pillaging, raping, murdering. That, that's not, you know, this is what they enjoy to do. He's saying that the, for the real terror is uh, after the war. And he believes that killing and pillaging, raping, and spreading white supremacy and disease everywhere they go has certain very ennobling powers. He says it's after the war that, that is the curse of the world, and it looks as if the same is going to be proof true of this war, which is usually the, the destruction of Europe, because a lot of these wars are fought on European soil or they go to other people's uh, lands to, to wreak havoc on them. America as a country has never experienced that, so war has always been a very prosperous endeavor for America in regards to um, creating and facilitating the Industrial Revolution as it took place in the United States. It was war, and the fact that no war ever came to the shores of the United States that made war extremely profitable, up until even the Iraq War as well, um, was, was very profitable um, during the, the reign of George Bush. Um, lastly, there was a section on page... Uh, 113, where he writes, uh, such is Europe's deplorable condition as she staggers forth from the hideous ordeal of the Great War. Her fluid capital dissipated, her fixed capital impaired, her industrial fa fabric rent and tattered, her finances threatened with bankruptcy, the flower of her manhood dead on the battlefield. Her population is devitalized and discouraged, her children stunted by malnutrition, a somber picture. And Europe is the white homeland, the heart of the white world. It is Europe that has suffered practically all the losses of Armageddon, which may be considered the white civil war. The colored world remains virtually unscathed. 
Here is the truth of the matter. The white world today stands at a crossroads of life and death. It stands where the Greek world stood at the close of the Peloponnesian War. A fever has racked the white frame and undermined its constitution. The unsound therapeutics of its diplomatic practitioners retard convalescence and the and, and excuse me, endanger real recovery. Worst of all, the instinct of race solidarity has practically, excuse me, partially atrophied. And I just find it interesting that he... Uh, hang tight, Roz. I just want to make sure oh, we sure. have time for everybody else. Appreciate it. No problem. Sorry about that. No, no apologies needed. Uh, anybody else that we have not heard from? Did you all have commentary you wanted to share? The other folks that have hand up, they didn't have commentary they wanted to share? Folks are just hanging out today. How fascinating. Uh, well, if nobody else has, and I hope people do not do the wait till the last minute uh, thing, we get ready to wrap up and then decide that they want to dial in with a question or response to something someone has uh, requested. Oh, I guess Mel did say she was going to talk about the debate. Did you want to touch on the debate? Are you uh, there, Mel? Not hearing you. Not hearing you. Don't know what the problem if you're having uh, audio issues uh, or any of the other people that have a hand up. Well, so that we do not have a major gap while uh, Mel or any of the other folks who had a hand up uh, are trying to figure out what is wrong with their microphone situation. Uh, some of the notes that I took that from the second portion of the reading, the metaphor where he says, where he's talking about the Mediterraneans and saying that they didn't fight, they stayed home and showed less fighting spirit. Uh, I consistently, any of the metaphors that involve skin, I think we should really uh, reflect on in a system of white supremacy because he said they stayed home uh, to save their skins, their quote unquote white skins. Uh, I thought that was uh, significant, and we get the same notion that the Nordics, since they're so superior, but they still end up dying out because they go out uh, to fight. Uh, the next one, he quotes Madison Grant uh, again in the text. I think that's about at least the third time, might be more than that, from just this week alone. Uh, and he wrote the introduction to the book as well. Um, Last week, he was talking about the fecundity, uh, the sexual potency of black people. And he was talking about it as uh, a detriment to black people, uh, something that just further evidence of the defective nature of Negroes. Uh, but this week, uh, when he comes back around, he says the Great War has thus unquestionably left Europe much poorer in Nord Nordic blood, while conversely, it has relatively favored the Mediterranean's. Oh, wrong quote, wrong quote. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Uh, the decreased fecundity of women during war, even under good material conditions, apparently shows that war's psychological reflexes tend to induce sterility. I thought this was important, uh, not just in terms of what he's saying this, all of this did to whites and Dr. Welsing, where she talks about white genetic annihilation, also reminded me of black people in terms of what happens to black people uh, with the high rates of infant high infant mortality rates amongst the black people. Black mental health is compromised in a myriad of ways uh, with the terrorism that is being waged 
against us, the war that is being waged against us. We have a lot of these same ramifications that he's talking about, which I'm sure he's not ignorant of. Uh, I'm sure he's very aware that these same sort of things happen to black people, victims of racism. Um, Let's see, continuing where he says... Let's see. It seems like he, in the both sections of the text that we read today, it seems like he does a lot of railing against different concepts uh, or different themes that might distract white people away from uh, maintaining white supremacy and get white people off into some other endeavor uh, that might even lead to conflict uh, and breaking up white solidarity, like when he says uh, Bolshevism or reactionary or even patriotic junction between... Oh, wait a minute, that's the wrong quote. Uh, it's the one of the lower quotes, but he talks about the same uh, thing with Bolshevism or some other concept uh, that is just going to cause a lot of confusion and distract whites from being on what they should be about, which is maintaining white domination. Uh, where he continues, when he's talking about all of the economic woes, allegedly, of Europe and whites, uh, I said he could have been talking about right now. I hear the exact same thing when they talk about Brexit, the rise of Donald Trump, and why you have a lot of this white angst, the economic upheaval of 2008. I I think that is just endemic. Whites are not about the business of creating peace and stability. Uh, That just seems to be a part of their business package, to have lots of what they call economic troubles and what have you, economic turmoil. Uh, So that that will be another stressor that will encourage and motivate. They can blame that on black people or when people get stressed about that, they can take out their stress and frustration on black people. Uh, Some of the other things that stood out. uh, The section where he talked about the loss of young white men. Um, He says the very men who are especially needed today, it's young men who normally alone possess both maximum driving power and maximum plasticity of mind. All of the European belligerents are dangerously impoverished in their stock of youth. The results, the resultant handicap both to Europe's working ability and Europe's brain activities is only too plain. Reminded me a lot of Dr. Welsing. I really would have enjoyed hearing her thoughts on that. I think she would have really emphasized that that is exactly why uh, whites really go to work aggressively on black males in their system of racism, white supremacy. Uh, And also, I think that specific section that I just read might go a long way to explaining the appeal of Donald Trump. Uh, I will... Pause there and check Mel again. Mel, are you with us now? Can you hear me? Yes, ma'am. Okay. Um, uh, on this section that we just read, before I get to the, my debate comments, just quickly, I wanted to point out on page 186 where he says, to show one, only one of the many causes that today keep down the birth rate, take the crushing burden of taxation, which hits especially the increase of the upper class, upper classes, I, that was the moment where I knew Lothrop Stoddard grew up rich, and then I confirmed that by Googling, and there was another author that wrote about him and Madison Grant and how he was Madison Grant's protege, um, and, and they described him as growing up wealthy. And I, besides Harvard, I should have guessed, but that was the moment I knew that he was wealthy. Um, 
but I think that sentence in particular, I think white people make a lot of excuses for a slowed or shrinking population and birth rate. Um, despite what the actual causes may be, there's the 2010 video by David Duke, the KKK leader, called Will the Race Survive, where he talks about how immigration is causing a white genocide. Genocide being where someone has to actively kill you. Genocide, immigration is not equivalent to there being a genocide. But anyway, and, and he talks about how white people are being forced into a gangster rap reality. It's a horrible video. It's called How how will the will the race survive um, by David Duke um, and on page 193 the second most egotistical line I've heard in the book so far uh, by a French author he's quoting Stoddard's quoting uh, quote the extraordinary turmoil of the European soil oh sorry <laughs> we civilizations he writes now know that we are mortal that was the second cockiest line of the book in my opinion um, and now my thoughts on the debate, and I'll try to make these really quick. Um, first page of Stoddard's response, uh, where he talks about, um, yet the minority is uh, dissatisfied, and most of the active dissatisfaction, dissatis um, being dissatisfied by a, you know, a minority of blacks is in the North. I thought that was a lie at the time of the 1929 debate. Sharecropping, Jim Crow imprisonment, lynchings, local, ra local racial cleansings are taking place, and most blacks happen to live in the South. It's not logical to believe that all the ornery ones just went North because the legacy of brutal subservience has been enforced in the South for a long time. Um, on page 14, Stoddard again, um, when he's responding to black people asking for social equality or for equal social opportunity, Stoddard says, uh, let, them, let them remember what always happens when the public opinion is alarmed and disturbed, when it is in an abnormal condition. I consider this a threat, and I think the abnormal system is that of racism, white supremacy. Um, then further on, he says, uh, Quote, secondly, biracialism does not imply relative questions of superiority or inferiority, but it is based upon the self-evident fact of difference. If biracialism means separate but equal, the exact prior sentence contradicts this. Um, he talks about how they're going to do their best to make sure the train cars are equal and even the audience laughs, and I completely get that because there's if if... If the self-evident fact of difference is self-evident, there's no self-evident reason for black people to have to sit on a different part of the train, which is what he talks about in the exact next sentence, how they're going to have, well, the sentence prior. Um, okay. I applaud Du Bois for pointing out how Stoddard uh, keeps emphasizing that blacks want to mix with whites um, and how that's not the goal. I think equality with whites is not the goal, and it shows how cocky he is. Uh, we should be universal man and universal woman. And I also think that black people's ultimate desire not being to intermarry with whites is a good one, especially considering the statistic that the average black person has around 10% European DNA. What I mean is that it's not like black people actively try to be with white people. If you consider even the movie Loving that's coming out about a white man insisting on a legal union with a black woman, but I guess we've already talked about this. Is no, no black people were dying to get with white people like that. Um, on the last page of the debate, when he says that Negroes who have faith in the USA and their race should not refuse their assent to a genuine biracial system, which will enable them to build a genuine culture, primarily their own on American soil. When he says that, I'm thinking black people had something called a culture or at least an ethnic identity before being on American soil and being enslaved. So I'm confused when he says, quote unquote, genuine culture. 
Like, do we consider white supremacists to even have a genuine culture? Everything they do is evil. So if a level of injustice is the meter stick we're measuring with, I mean, is it? Oh, and last but not least, my partner did want to apologize if he sounded tired at the end of Chapter 8. It has been a long work week for him. And that was all my points. Thank you. Appreciate it. No apologies. Uh, the system of white supremacy does a lot of damage to our mental health. We are appreciative. Hopefully uh, won't be so rough uh, next week. And uh, great job with the reading. Bravo. Um, I think one of the best lines for someone who is, uh, in my view, regularly deceptive in his reading uh, from the debate where Stoddard, where he says, when we look at the situation, whether we survey it north, south, east or west, there is only one conclusion I believe that we can come to. And that is that white America is resolved not to abolish the color line, i.e. they're not going to stop practicing racism. That's the one time where I can portray. I'm like, oh, yeah, I definitely being truthful on that one. Uh, if folks have uh, a final word they want to get in, either on the debate uh, or the book specifically, uh, we have about three minutes left. Uh, if you can be very concise, uh, the line that I meant to get in was monstrous insanities as Bolshevism. Uh, the danger is that this chaos may be prolonged and deepened, where he's talking about just any of these other uh, concepts uh, or anything that may siphon away energy focus from whites uh, on what they should be doing. Anybody else have something quickly they wanted to add last few minutes? Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Okay, no, real quickly, I thought that um, that uh, the doctor did a fantastic job in the debate and where he simply said on page 8, the temptation to hold these colored people back is tremendous because, because it is not merely a matter of academic wish or of wanton prejudice, but it's the kernel of the organization of your modern life. And that goes to just to show the brilliance of not only the doctor, but also for Mr. Fuller and how they need to dominate us in every factor of life, period. And, um, he, and he also goes on in the last sentence to say, if, if it is overthrown, if these black laborers get high wages, if they begin to understand what life may be, which is like Dr. Wilson says, use our brain computers, if they increase in knowledge, self-assertion, and power, it means the overthrow of the whole system of exploitation. You can insert white supremacy, which is at the bottom of modern white civilization. What now is your decision? And I just thought that that was brilliant that even then he understood that, you know, in order for you to keep on with the system of white supremacy, you need to have Negroes confused, period. That word civilization again uh, that I mentioned earlier, I think, uh, you can, <clears throat> being civilized means you don't practice racism, white supremacy. You support justice. Uh, final word. Anybody need to get in? Thirty seconds. I assume folks are satisfied. Ross, thirty seconds to uh, finish up. I know you might have had a little more than that, but anything you want to add in the last thirty seconds? Um. Sure. Yes. I just wanted to. Um. Okay. So yes, when they were um, when he was talking about um, race solidarity, white people never had race solidarity, and to me, he he basically was t telling another line that kind of was exposed in this area, because he's basically discussing civil war amongst white people, of course, but yet at the same time, there's this racial solidarity, and we all know that the racial solidarity that he's discussing is racism, white supremacy. That's the only thing that they can 
basically agree upon. Everything else they've tried to destroy each other on, and everything that they've done to us and other non-white people, they did to themselves first and, and continue to do to each other as well as what they do to us. It, it's just that they don't publicize as much the brutality that they visit, visit upon their own kind, like, like we get to see wholesale how, how they're killing us and genociding us. Uh, thank you, and I'll meet my line. For sure. I snickered. Any of the folks who got the PDF of the debate that a listener shared with me, anyone who got the copy shared from me, uh, you'll see the little uh, red asterisk uh, on the page. I put those there because uh, I was not able to highlight the article for whatever reason. I can generally just highlight on my PDFs, but I was struggling to do it here, so I just put the little uh, red asterisk there uh, so that I would know, okay, check this line. With that, we'll be here tomorrow. Compensatory call-in, 9 p.m. Eastern, 8 p.m. Central, 6 p.m. Pacific. We'll also be here on Sunday, Global Sunday Talk on Racism. I am very eager to hear our international listeners' commentary on the U.S. presidential election, how it's been discussed in their part of the world, what their perception of the event was. That'll be Sunday. That is our early program, 3 p.m., Eastern, 2 p.m. Central, 12 noon Pacific, uh, Sunday afternoon, and that obviously is our short program. 90 minutes if you can tune in. Looking forward to it. Uh, Thanks, everyone, for sharing. If you have a book that you would like to read next, drop an email, untiljustice at gmail.com. I think we got about three more sessions. Thanks again, Mel, her partner. Fantastic effort. Really appreciate uh, all of y'all's hard work uh, and hope folks are learning a lot going through the book. Dr. Francis Cress Welsing would be proud. Uh, with that, again, sobriety would be best under conditions of white supremacy. Uh, war is being waged against us. Uh, I think Roz made a gr- uh, great point in terms of having a long-range goal view around racism. Mr. Stoddard perhaps writing this book uh, for racists 100 years down the road uh, to make sure that they know their way what is expected of them as white women, white men, white children. Uh, With that in mind and that level of warfare, you really want to make sure that as often as possible we are sober so that we can make phenomenal decisions to keep ourselves as safe as possible, Uh, particularly if you're going to be in a vehicle. You never know when today will be the day that you are stopped by Darren Wilson, Daniel Holtzclaw, any of these other race soldiers, badge or no, whites are very dangerous. Let's make sure that our behavior as much as possible at all times reflects the fact that war is being waged against us and that we as attempted counter-racists, we take that very seriously. With that, Creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people, victims of white supremacy. We ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times in all places each and every time we are in contact with another black person it has been time replace white supremacy with justice immediately cow signing out thanks all for tuning in nigga you so brainwashed i'm a victim brother I'm a victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm -hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned.
Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.